Today I have with me Dr. Sheila Newsom, MD. We spend time discussing her backstory in the military, her nephrology business, and the point at which, in her 60s, she transitioned from Gary to Sheila. From there we dive into many polemical transgender issues. Finally, we discuss Sheila's ketamine concierge service, Finding Metis. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy getting to know Dr. Sheila Newsom. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today we have with us Dr. Sheila Newsom, MD. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Robert. <laughs> glad, glad to be here. Yeah, I know. It's uh, This has been an interesting challenge getting us together in the same room at the same time. Yeah, hey, <laughs> it's taken a while. Yes. Yeah, but... Uh, I'm actually very excited about today's sh show for multiple reasons, um, which I'm sure the audience will pick up on as we go. Um, but before we go down the path of talking about what we're going to be talking about, I want to know a little bit about your backstory, uh, which is actually something I don't generally do with guests and I don't really enjoy okay. watching it, which right. is why I don't do it. Um, I just kind of like, let's get to the thing we're going to talk about. But your background, I think, is actually kind of uh, compelling as um, especially... Uh, as it relates to how your future kind of turned out. So why don't you uh, talk us through kind of like what your high school and college life sort of was like. Okay. Um, I was born in West Texas in, in Big Spring, and um, my father owned the grocery store, and my mother was a professional singer. Um, grandparents lived several blocks away. I was the only grandchild for a long time, so it was a, it was a wonderful upbringing. A lot of support, a um, lot of love. Um, nobody was hesitant to, to say that, that, uh, I, I love you. So I always felt loved and supported. Um, by the time I got to high school, um, uh, a coach, uh, Spike Dykes actually, who was later at tech and at Texas and then tech, uh, was my senior coach in high school. And, um, Spike gave me, a confidence when I didn't know that I had it. And so that was the first time that I really had a mentor show up. And it, it seems that at different points in my life, those those people have shown up. So it was just a really remarkably uh, gifted uh, childhood and uh, going going into uh, the, the teenage years. Um, I was popular. Um, I think it was Mr. BSHS in 1968, <laughs> and, uh, one of the ca captains of the football team. Um, That's no small accomplishment. Well, in those days in West Texas, um, you know, it, you, you played football. And mm -hmm. Friday Night Lights, uh, Permian was in our district, and um, that, that, was the, the, that was a clear definition of exactly what that rite of passage, that ritual was like for young men during those those days, and so I was really fortunate to to have gone through that from the seventh grade on. I think it really helped in giving me a, a matrix to work from. Um, I went to my father was a, an Aggie, um, and I, there wasn't even any question about whether where I was going to go. So mm -hmm. I graduated from high school, went to A&M for a year. Um, did well there. I played fi uh, fish baseball and, and lettered um, my freshman year. And then I was, think I was the class vice president. And, you know, so I, I, I did okay. Popular and athletic. I was popular. You're accursed. Uh, well, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, about January, 
uh, the bloom had worn off. Uh, and I got a letter from my mother, uh, and she said, you know, I, I just saw this in the paper, you know, the Big Spring Daily Herald, an announcement about uh, applications for West Point. She goes, you know, I don't know. I just thought you might want to, to think about this. Well, by that time, like I said, the bloom had worn off, and um, I, I was looking for more challenge, and so started the application process, went to Fort Sam, took the test, um, and by May, I had received my uh, letter of uh, acceptance to West Point. So um, I flew to West Point on Brandeis Airline uh, the last day of um, June in 1969. And um, a friend of mine who had been a sweet mate at A&M and his girlfriend drove me up uh, to West Point, and I'll never forget them. Uh, we stopped, had ice cream at a little stand, and... Um, I remember saying to him, I said, I won't have ice cream here until I'm driving out um, after I've graduated. Hmm. And he kind of smiled. and <clears> you <throat> know, little, little gift to yourself. Little, yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, the, the thing was, Robert, getting on that plane, I, I remember thinking, this is what destiny looks like. This is what destiny feels like. And I didn't even know what that meant. But I just felt I was opening to something larger. And, you know, as soon as I walked through those gates, I felt at home. Um, it, was a, it was the first calling that I think that I had uh, answered to, and I knew what the response meant. Um, so I began uh, then the 1st of July of uh, 1969 at West Point, and those were four years of, of being extremely challenged, extremely happy. Um, there was so much to to do and be every hour was occupied. And the other part of it is, is that, you know, besides the friendships, um, there was an underlying ethos. There was an underlying spirit there that I felt that first day. And I, I really didn't know what that was until much later. But uh, Athena, the goddess Athena is everywhere. She's uh, her helmet is on the rings, it's on the books, it's on the side of the walls. And so my retrospective sees that Athena um, is, um, is everywhere. And I didn't really understand what, what that swearing-in ceremony was, but it was really being, I was really being sworn into not only the, the combat arms uh, and the Constitution and all of those things, but it was at a deeper level. I was being sworn in, I think, as a consort uh, uh, to uh, something much larger. Um, and I always had that that same idea that there was something greater here going on than what I thought um, that when I could have experienced. But I did well. Um, you became you know, a paratrooper. Uh, yeah, uh, but mm -hmm. at West Point, I mean, you've got to understand that every class is graded every day. So it was so nice to have an idea of where I was in a, at a point in time, with especially the the ego formation and the 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 the, the pomp and circumstance. It helped me define who and what I was. 
that part of life, I think, was, was developing a certain persona. Uh, and um, that was a great place to do it. I bet. It's also, uh, that challenge kind of drives you to be a better person in every aspect of your life, not just the one that they're testing you on. It, it, it was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the do on air country uh, thing was, was a reality. I mean, it wasn't just something that you said. You did not lie, steal, or cheat. And uh, everybody took that seriously. So by the time I was a senior, I was a second in command of the Corps my senior year and uh, captain of the baseball team. And um, so I, I, I left uh, West Point after graduation the 3rd of June. Um, but, you know, I, I, as I was driving out from the gates that, that day, I'll never forget thinking somehow something was missing. And I didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I just felt like I had um, missed something. Um, I did stop at the at the ice cream stand. No, did you? Out, okay, uh, good. Uh, my, <laughs> was it as sweet as you hoped it would it be? Was, it was even better. Oh, great. Um, so <laughs> anyway, I did that. Uh, went to uh, infantry officer basics um, at uh, Fort Benning, then to ranger school, uh, we'd already been to airborne school when we were uh, in, during our uh, Cal or junior year. And um, so because of, of the, the place I was in the chain of command, I got to, to select where I was going to go. And my roommate and I, who was the first captain, um, and I both went to uh, chose an airborne unit in Italy. Hmm. And so I spent four years as a paratrooper in uh, northern Italy. And um, that was, it was right after the, the, in fact, they signed the Vietnam Accord the um, January of my graduation year. And a member of the New York Times came up to sit with us uh, and watch and ask questions about the cadets, uh, how we perceive, how I perceived uh, the the, the signing uh, of that. accord and what that meant for me and, and typically naive and, and typically hubristic and typically warrior I said <clears throat> yeah. you know this is this that ends the reason that I came here to begin with uh, I came to be a warrior and I didn't know what that meant um, the good thing is is that I, I went to the unit uh, in Italy and all of the NCOs had spent four six years in Vietnam. So they were well-trained and the army's run by the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers. Um, and if, if you open to that, then they will work with you. They'll train you how to be a leader. And that's where the leadership really developed. And, and that's where I really felt gifted that with the people that I had, that I was uh, supposed to be guiding actually the sergeants took me under their wings and said, this is the way it happens. This is the way you do it. You know, the tactics and all those things, the jumps and, and all, and there were 69 jumps, um, are all the drama in between, but how, how an army practices going to war, um, was, was a really interesting phenomena. Uh, how, would, how would you describe it after it was all said and done? If you're looking back on those, 
was it six years? Six years? Yeah, it, it was <laughs> five years. Five and uh, I spent a year up here at Fort Hood. They didn't know what to do with a, a, a captain. I'd already made the decision to get out. So they sent me to Defense Information School. And so um, I, I loved that. Um, that. But I ran a newspaper at Fort Hood the last year in the Army, which was, was really a, a lot of fun in a lot of ways. But when I look back at that, what I do know is that all of the ubris that I had going in and would have had going into battle would have been over in about 15 seconds. Mm. And um, <clears throat> you're saying you would have just run straight into the line of fire? Is that I, what I, I, <clears throat> my life expectancy would have been really short. And um, it, uh, you've got to remember is that that was the time where if you could see it, you could kill it. Uh, on the battlefield, sure. It's not not like today where it's a hundred miles no. away. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's a, a a different um, set. It's a different matrix, and so now the concepts and, and are completely different. Um, and I really admire uh, the 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 people that have helped develop the tactics that go with this. I, Dave Petraeus was a, uh, a uh, actually a class behind me, um, but was in my unit uh, in Italy. So I got to know Dave and his wife, um, who turns out to be uh, the, 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 the tactical genus uh, mm-hmm. of, of our generation. But the main thing was is that uh, I felt lucky at, in retrospect to have been taught what it meant to be soldier uh, by people that were soldier and who took it seriously. And the move into medicine was really along the same line. Yeah, yeah. How did you make that jump? Well, again, it was my mother, and uh, the singer. I, 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 you know, uh, is this mother complex? <laughs> Should come with forward? a uh, gift certificate to the uh, little yeah. medical school, or <laughs> no? But we were having this conversation. Uh, I survived a year of living in Austin between when I got out of the army and going to medical school. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I remember having this conversation with her, and, you know, I said, I just feel really lost. And she goes, well, sweetie, I, you know, I, I trained as a nurse. Um, you know, do you ever think about medicine? Well, the thing is, I, I hooked on to that and realized I could party for a year and keep everybody off my back. Well, I did that, <laughs> and then you know it sounded good. It was altruistic. I thought, oh, well, helping people—that mm-hmm. sounds like what I'd like to do. Sure. And it was hard and um, worthy of your discipline. Yeah, it it was there, and, and so I. But I remember the first day of medical school. Um, we were sitting in this amphitheater. I went to uh, University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. But we were sitting there in a group, <clears throat> and there were two professors behind us that were about to talk, but they were talking to each other, and I could hear them. And one of them uh, w- w- was laughing. Uh, and it was a sarcastic laugh. And I'll never forget, he said, they all look so innocent. Mm. And... Right after that, one of them gets up and says, you know, I just want you to know that one out of seven of you will be alcoholic. One out of ten of you uh, will commit suicide. And if if you want to go ahead and, and go through that, I just want you to know what 
what what the odds are for you of surviving this through the end, end of your days. That's pretty sobering, no pun intended. It, it was, but I again, Robert, think of that. Uh, age 29 then, 28, invincible. Hard drinking, uh, hard partying. No, you know, by the time I got back from Italy, um, I drank wine and all, but I'd never drank, uh, I had never drunk hard liquor, except maybe a couple of times. I was not a hard partier. I had tried uh, marijuana then, though, during that year, and realized that that, that put me in a different space. And um, But as soon as I got to medical school, I shut things down again. And so I was very disciplined. Fortunately, I were, uh, by that time, I had met my best friend and future wife. And so every weekend that I didn't have a test in Galveston, I drove the 311 miles to TCU <laughs> to uh, to be with her. And uh, so we That's did that. That's love right there, 300 about, miles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it was a nice way to, to navigate that whole period of time. This is before the days of podcasts. You yeah. Know, AM radio or something. Uh, AM radio. <laughs> and uh, I, I've always been a, a big Ranger fan um, mm. from the baseball days. So I'd, I'd time it as I could, you know, to listen to the Rangers. Um, but um, it was a special time. I uh, my, my grandfather helped pay my way. My parents paid for the rest. And so, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of... Um, a problem with 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 the financing uh, part of it so mostly it was just the 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 rigors of getting through the, that whole process it was like being a plebe again and i i, I was always kind of fighting the bridle uh, of that and i thought that i originally when i went to medical school I thought i was going to be a surgeon um but uh, i'll never forget i was in my third year of medical school and we had oral uh, exams uh, in surgery. And so I remember walking into the this small room about like this that had bookshelves, and the guy that was asking the questions, the physician, um, was asking. And I remember walking in and saying, God, just show me, give me a sign if this isn't where I'm supposed to be. And so, your mom it, shows up with a gift certificate. It, <laughs> nearly, <laughs> the the bookshelf collapses. Oh, geez! Literally during the time that we're doing this, I mean, it just falls down. So I I took it as a sign from God, <laughs> from the goddess. Hey, you're not supposed to go into surgery. So um, I actually loved psychiatry. I loved the 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 mind. I loved the mindset. The other thing that that didn't hit me until much later when I looked back was is that Galveston was really forward thinking, and uh, they had a transgender program in the late 70s, uh, which assisted in gender transition for um, uh, male to female transitions, and so that's, remember, that's pretty early, it, especially it for West Texas. Very early, and <clears throat> and. Um, this was um, DSM three was out then, and so it was a pathology. Uh, homosexuality was a pathology, and so actually that they were looking to treat underlying depression uh, and any other pathology that they could find. 
but at the same time, they were giving these women the opportunity to, to move into this space, uh, this psychic space, before they committed to bottom surgery. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting to be with those people. And, but I, I never forget what that felt like. But I uh, really wrestled with going into psychiatry. In fact, I had uh, decided that I would go into psychiatry and had a residency planned at the University of Arizona. And at the last minute, um, I I just got cold feet and um, thought it wasn't practical enough or, you know, it, it was not macho enough. So I went out to Lubbock and did family practice out there. That lasted about two months, and um, I realized after about two months of being in the in the program that um, I just wasn't going to have enough specific knowledge about something to allow me to be an expert, and that really appealed to me. So, um, again, uh, as fate would have it, one of the, the premier nephrologists in the world shows up in Lubbock, Texas at the uh, at uh, Texas Tech University Health Science Center and becomes head of the Department of Medicine. That was Neil Kurtzman and his wife was uh, Sandra Sabatini, world-class um, uh, nephrologist. And um, they were the, the editors of world-renowned um, journals and they had entree to, to that world. And so I agreed to become his first fellow. Mm-hmm. So I switched over to internal medicine and did two years of internal, three years of internal medicine, and then a year of fellowship, uh, as an, two years of fellowship as a uh, nephrology fellow, and then went out into practice as a nephrologist and critical care doctor. Mm-hmm. Those were the days before hospitalist. Uh, entered the scene. It wasn't until much later in my career that uh, the hospital doctors took over the role. But I mean, I took care of folks from beginning to end, and uh, to see that that transit that to be present for people going through, especially with chronic illness like this, with the with the the kidney disease. Those guys' average life expectancy was about five years. So. Um, I really was ill-equipped to handle the uh, grief, uh, the trauma that goes with death and dying. Uh, because with, all your patients eventually die all, in all this case. Did. Yeah, all of them did. <clears throat> what was the average? Five, five years. Five years. So you have really just got to ner- know these people intimately. You're just kind of becoming friends with their family and all the things that happen with yeah. doctors, family doctors, and you de- definitely do have a bedside manner about you so i'm sure you actually did i did go out of your way to meet these people but i I was an asshole well i mean uh, the (laughs) thing was is that um think about uh, alcoholics have as a hard drive childishness emotional sensitivity and grandiosity well let's start there when did you become a alcoholic well i mean i was born one let me just say that it wasn't until um a Christmas party when I was 35 years old um, doing a, a, in my first job uh, as a nephrologist uh, partner in Midland, Texas. 
And the way that the, we had set it up is that you were on call for a whole month at a time. And it, it was, it that's was kind of insane. Brutal call. Yeah. And that, that was before cell phones The you know, there was nothing easy. You had to stop, find a pay phone. You know, if you're going between middle and Odessa, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, I'll never forget. Uh, it was a Christmas party and my partner, uh, he was the senior partner handed me a Chivas and seven up and I'd never drunk Chivas. Um, and I said, I said, Hey, I'm on call. He said, Hey, don't worry about it. Anyway, uh, I'll never forget drinking the Chivas and, um, something clicked. It, it just was, tasted that good. It was, no, it just made me feel the way I knew that I was supposed to feel hmm. that went back to, which was numb, which was numb. And, um, the first time I'd really drunk, uh, my parents were out of town. I stole some liquor out of their cabinet, hit it. And with a may, with a, with a babysitter there, I got drunk. So the first time I drank, I got drunk <laughs> and, uh, I never, and that's what I intended. So, Alcohol and I had a relationship for a long time it, uh, before it finally manifested. But as soon as I got off call when I was 35, uh, uh, two weeks later, I drove to Pinkies and got a bottle of Chivas. And I was off and running. My wife was just amazed uh, by the change. And But, you know, uh, it, it, it was not abrupt, but in retrospect it was. I mean, there was a psychic change that went on. With and, what, and what did she say about that? And how did she well, react to I mean, it, it like was that? kind of fun. I got out of my shell. Mm -hmm. And for the first couple of years, it was fun. And, you know, we go out and drink wine and eat and all. That. But gradually, I couldn't tell you when I was going to start, when I started to drink, that I would stop. And so that's when I knew I was an alcoholic. Um, and it began to dawn on me after about five years. I'll never forget sitting in a parking lot, hearing on the story uh, a story on NPR about somebody that had gone to treatment, a and I, I remember thinking, "That's where I'm going. That's where I'm headed." And that was well, that was a year beforehand. But by the time I got there, I mean, I you know uh, it. I, so so let's interleave these okay. uh, stories a little bit. So you were an entrepreneur around that time as well, right? Not yet. Not yet. That was uh, after posts um, getting clean. Yeah, um, I, I had bought into a lab um, with a, a, the the partners that I was with, mm. and so you know it it was a, a matter of just doing my work, but actually being part of a, a larger venue. When I moved, it wasn't, though, until later that I moved to Midland, Odessa the second time. I'd moved back after a year and a half mm -hmm. to Lubbock. And so the majority of my practice between the time uh, of, um, between, let's see, I guess I moved back to Lubbock in um, 93, 90, no, before that, 92. And so th when I went to treatment then I was in Lubbock and um, so you went into AA 
I went to treatment in Atlanta. There's a story, though, that I want to tell you. (laughs) Because, again, it kind of shows this force behind you, behind me, this diamond, this angel, or whatever. Um, But my mother died in December of 1992. She had come come up for her uh, normal examination once a year, and... Um, by that time, she and my father had inherited some money. They'd done well, and so they were traveling the world and really having a good time. She was 63, but um, she had had a little n- nodule on her lung that the internist, who I knew very well, uh, was worried about, but it hadn't grown in size. But he said, and I will never forget, he said, hey, Marilyn, listen, why don't we just do a CAT scan just to make sure that there's nothing untoward here? So I'll never forget, they had a floor for VIPs in Methodist Hospital during those days. You know, it, it was, you know, that, that's just the way you practice medicine. It, it was concierge medicine. So uh, I remember my parents were up in a room, and I went back down, and one of the radiologist who I'd known since the second grade, I said, hey, Scott, let's look at, uh, at Marilyn's x-ray. I've got to go get him out of here and make sure that uh, it's, it's as clean as we think it is. Anyway, when he pulled it up, there was a, a big metastasis in the brain. So um, I, I remember sitting on the bed. I remember walking into the room, and my mother was sitting on the bed, and, and I said, Mom, You've got a tumor. And um, both of them were just stunned. You know, my mother and father, and we we were close. We were a close family. And I'll never forget, she turns to my father and says, well, let's go home. And so um, it was... Then that was August, and so by December, she came in uh, back to the hospital there and uh, was in a room um, for three weeks, m- mainly palliative care. The, 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 the primary was in her lung, but it metastasized to her brain and to bone and all, and it was a bad death. I mean, it was a bad death, but... Um, I missed her. I missed her death. I was drunk the night before, hungover. It was late when I walked into the room. Uh, they were cleaning her up, and uh, so that was the. Um, you know, it was the first time I really had seen my mother for what she was. I, she was a human, and I'd always projected mother on her, and really had never seen the the great beauty uh, of of her and uh, she had a marvelous voice marvelous voice and should have should have gone to Juilliard uh, for training she was world-class and um, you know sang all over West Texas and was my wa- my wife's mentor in voice but um, you know I just never saw her for who she was and I realized that you know it wasn't until much later that I realized how much projection of that, how difficult it is when we project things on our parents. Um, 
and it, it's unconscious, but it's done in a, we we all do it. But I just didn't realize it until that day. So a, a month after that, I went to um, we went to the Super Bowl, and we went to um, that was the Cowboys and Bills, nineteen ninety three, and uh, it was at uh, the Rose Bowl. And a good friend of ours had a condo, and we stayed. Um, my, my father actually had rented a condo for a long period of time in Point Loma. So we flew out there, and we flew on the private plane up to the Rose Bowl. And I'll remember being, my, my brother and I, who was always around for the, the partying, who is not an alcoholic, but we'd been up all night partying in the strip clubs and um so i'll never forget having those sunglasses on and my father sitting about where you are and it it hit me how embarrassed i was Mm. um that uh that there there was something disgusting about the way that i was living my life was it the way he was looking at you or you just internalized it it was it was how uh, embarrassing you felt uh, that's right I mean, mm-hmm. it was reflected. It was me seeing me in his face, and so um, we flew the the Rose Bowl, saw the game. Cowboys uh, won big. Michael Jackson did halftime. It was a, a big day. But on the way back, I drank a beer um, about ten o'clock that night, and so that's the last uh, drink that I had. So the first of February of nineteen ninety three is my dry date. On the way back. So this is this is where the mystery really gets deeper in that the plane was supposed to be full. It was a king air, and there was room for about 12, 15 of us, but um, there were two of us. And um, this guy had played quarterback at UT, and had actually gotten bounced, I think, because of cocaine or, or something. But about halfway through the flight, I'm sitting there thinking about what I'm going to do after I land, go to the bar, blah, blah, blah. Um, And he turns to me and says, I want you to know I'm an alcoholic and how I got sober in Lubbock, Texas. So within the next... Out of the blue, he just Out of the wild blue. (laughs) Out of the wild blue, Robert. And so, again, there was another one of those nudges. And so if, if he had not said anything, I would have gotten off the plane and, and gone and done what I, I, I normally did. This was about seven years into my deep drinking. Uh, so I was 42, started at 35, and it really crescendoed the last couple of years. But I remember getting off the plane and thinking, well, I've, I've got to go home. So I drove home, sat down with my wife, and I said, babe, I'm an alcoholic and I need to go to treatment. And um, how'd she take that? And she said, well, I'm, I'm glad, you know, we both sat there and cried. And she goes, you know, I had already made plans to, to leave you wow. in a week. Wow. And so she uh, had already co- coordinated with my brother and said, hey, I can't do this anymore. So if that hadn't have happened, then everything else would have unraveled. So I went to my my partner, who I had actually fired (laughs) when I was high, accusing him of being high. Um, I went to his house and said he had been to Atlanta. And Atlanta was where uh, uh, recalcitrant 
uh, physicians were sent um, because they wouldn't take you anyplace else. So I went to Atlanta for, for six months. And, um, you know, the, the first day, I'll never forget the big nurse, uh, Carol Bowers, it s- screams at us. She goes, y- y- you guys are a bunch of arrogant fucks. That's what you, you are a bunch of arrogant fucks and you're all angry. And I just want you to know. So that's kind of where we started. And Was she wrong? Uh, no, no, <laughs> she wasn't. Um, and the, the good thing was is that I was there with a bunch of fentanyl addicts. Um, most of the anesthesiologists that were there, their drug of choice was fentanyl. Um, opioids were just about hitting the, 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 the market, but it was not a huge deal. But um, alcoholism uh, and uh, fentanyl were the, were the big things. But um, after a month... It's the, funny because it's, now it's a big thing on the streets. It it is, That's and, and um, I mean it. It's just uh, um, amazing that people can survive uh, using those chemicals. Uh, in that, that seems way. like you do it for a month, and then you're probably uh, just it's Russian uh, roulette every single time. Uh, and I, I had a, a friend that told told me that he would shoot up um, in the stall in the surgical suite and time it. So that as he fell back on the commode, that it would, uh, that that the syringe would pull out. It, 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 I mean, it was it was just a disgustingly amazing thing. This is like a House MD episode right there. Yeah. Uh, well, it, and I mean, there were uh, so nurses, physicians, um, in in separate uh, quarters. We called the women's um, area Thunderdome. That was the 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 time of, of Mad Max and mm-hmm. all. But um, they they taught us how to live in community. I mean, none of us knew how to, uh, to clean up. None of us knew how to cook a meal, how to be in community with anybody or anything. And um, so we... But that's not completely true. You had a ton of life skill by that point. Well, I did. I did, Robert. But I, during the, those seven, eight years... Well, longer than that, that I'd left the army, you know, I just got uh, uh, arrogant. I mean, I just uh, uh, lost those skills Mm. and realized that um, or thought that, you know, that that was below me. And so, um, you know, they'd give us coupons and we'd have to go to Kroger's and buy groceries and uh, we could go to the mall once a week and, you know, simple stuff. We went to meetings, and um, but they, uh, the after two months, then you had to find a, a place to, to, to do work, and so I was sent down to the mission, in downtown Atlanta, and so I'd go down there every day, and uh, these were all guys that had gotten out of prison, and had thirty days sober, and were living there as a house ha- halfway house, and I did. I mopped the floors and, uh, you know, helped cook the meals and, and did, um, did class uh, with these guys. And so what I was able to see very quickly, and they were able to see with me, is that it was the same disease. I mean, we were all childish and emotionally sensitive and grandiose and had a lot of the same um, uh, character defects. So it was a really good way for me to see mirrored 
th- this is who who I am. Uh, and so there, the 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 fifth the fifth step with um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous out of the twelve steps is where you you share with somebody the, the things that really are deep dark secrets. Um, and um, the secrets are that still the core. Uh, there, there are two secrets. Uh, one, it is it, the compulsion to use gets taken away. That's that's the main promise. Magically, it's a gift. You call it whatever you want. The higher power, though, takes that away. And for me, that happened very quickly. So I didn't really ever struggle uh, with the um, with the compulsion to drink. I had roommates, sweet mates. One drank on the way home after nine months. One shot himself two weeks after got after he got home. So I mean, I, I saw the, the I saw the manifestations of something, and I was just scared to death about going back and not getting this. And so I was really desperate. And um, I remember there's uh, <clears throat> the, the nurse that, that had told us how what we really were the first day tells me the last the last day, she goes, listen, there, there's a, a key, there's a secret here. You say the third step prayer every day and you won't come back here, you won't drink. Third step prayer, I offer myself to you to, to be with me and do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. So um, it, it, it's a way to start. A, a, and so every day since, you know, I've done my prayer, my meditation, third step prayer. Um, you know, I, I read the big book still, um, perhaps not as much as I'd like. Go to meetings on Zoom. Um so I, I I was devoted to the to the AA program, um, but the main thing is is that it was a gift of some some higher entity, some higher power that took away that compulsion. So let's fast forward a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> so right. now you've kicked the habit. You have made a bunch of money. You're sitting with your wife in some beautiful tropical paradise. Yeah. And you start having some epiphanies, and I wouldn't okay. say all of them are great. Um, I think you you were on a downward spiral um, leading up to there as well. Well, and yeah, you're right. So um, fast forward to um, 2010, 2011. Um, actually, a little bit before that, 2010. There's another story of somebody showing up. So I moved to Midland in 2004 after 15 years of building a practice in Lubbock. I moved to Midland to be with a, a partner and our plan was to build a dialysis center. <clears throat> one of us had had to have be a free agent, not attached to one of the, the major dialysis groups so that we could sell that to that group. And one of us had to be a, a free agent, not a, not part of that group. So um, I moved down there, and the the practice was was spread out between Monahan's, Middle Odessa, Big Spring. 
so constantly on the road. Um, and so it, w- it was a really a difficult practice. Um, but successful. But successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy that I, I partnered with was, was really a bright guy, had built this practice up over a long period of time. We borrowed the money together in order to, to build the dialysis center, the biggest dialysis center in, in that part of the world. But uh, the, the company that we had worked for that promised to, to buy the, the, the entity, the, the dialysis center, as soon as we got through, lowballed us. And so uh, we were kind of left there holding the bag. All of that w- was personal debt. And I didn't realize that until much later. And so um, I have a lien placed on everything we own. My wife and child had moved down here in 2006 because I was never at home in Midland. This was where we wanted to retire. So they started a a new life down here. Um, But um, I remember we owed the IRS a lot of money. And they put a lien on the house, and I, I really did not have any place to turn. So the dark of night, uh, one of my patients was a, an oil, oil man and who I knew pretty well, but I knocked on his door uh, about 8 o'clock one night, and he opened the door, and he said, Dr. Newsom, what are you doing here? I said, Jack, I need to, I need to talk to you. And so I sat down, and so um, I said, Jack, I need, I need to borrow a lot of money. And he asked me how much, and I told him, he said, well, he said, uh, can you wait till Tuesday? That was Friday night. And uh, No, I'm going to need it faster. <laughs> so, I mean, again, uh, out of the wild blue. Why, why did you pick him? Why, why did you think he would? Most people are not that kind where they're just going to hand you a big You know, I, I guess, Robert, it goes back, though, to that relationship that I had with my patients by that time. I mean, I, I, I was, I saw these folks three times a week. You know, I knew their family, I knew their backstory. Uh, I saw them in the hospital when they were hospitalized, uh, you know, so I, there was a, a familiarity, not only a, a, a physical, but of a spiritual sort. And I, I, I thought I could trust Jack. And I, the worst that he could say was no. And I didn't have any other place to go. So, um, you know, all I, all I could have said was, Dr. Newsom, I can't do that. And then I would have had to figure out something else. But no, he said, I can help. So that got us over a, a really rough patch. And then, uh, again, we still were could not get the, the, the paperwork that we needed to open the center and do all of this. Um, you know, one thing after another. But... One night, I was. Uh, it came to me that there was a partner that we, a, a, a practice that we had competed against in Lubbock, and the, the guy that was the competitor was a really bright nephrologist. But those guys were uh, on another team, under with a, a different company, and there were only two companies in the U.S. that were doing that sort of work. So I called him and said, "Hey, who?" is who's head of acquisitions. And so I called that number and in two days, those guys were down there and all of a sudden there was a bidding war and between the two companies. Mm -hmm. 
And this was right at the the verge of a West Texas and a, a big market. And so they got into a, a crazy bidding war. And so by the time that it, it was over, which was about two weeks, I mean, within a two-week period, my life changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. I mean, dramatically. And so all of a sudden... You know, we had millions and millions of dollars. And um, so I remember calling my wife and saying, sweetie, we sold the dialysis center. And I'd been working to do that for eight years, driven back and forth 221 times round trip between here and Midland. And um, those were not happy times. I mean, there, I mean, I never... I, Every time I left the house, I cried to Lano, w- without exception. And so that was a long time to not to to be in that crucible. So whenever we got the check, I told my partner, "Hey, I'm out of here." Uh, we did some negotiation, et cetera, and then so I retired uh, in 2011. Sort of retired. <laughs> sort of retired. Well, by that by that time. Um, you know, my, I, I had a bucket list, and so a, a mentor friend of mine, MD, had had always encouraged me to go to Mount Kalesh, um, uh, and he was a, a spiritual mentor as well. He said, there's something magical about Mount Kalesh, and uh, it's in Tibet, and it, in the, it, it's the, the mountain uh, of Shiva, in the, the the Hindu tradition, it's a also holy in the Buddhist tradition, and there's a local religion called the Bon religion as well. So it, it's it's a holy uh, pilgrimage, which is about 35 miles around. So, you know, I signed up to uh, to to a tour to go on that, and while I was going to do that, my wife said well, I'm going to go to the Caribbean, and we had made plans to buy a couple of um, condos in, on St. Kitts and lease to the medical students that were going uh, to, to medical school down there. So she flies to St. Kitts. I fly to um, China. And I'll never forget um, looking on China Mobilecom, and there's a picture of this beautiful uh, villa and Beverly says, I, I found what I really love. I've never, I've, I've never said this, but this is where I'd, I'd love to wind up. So we bought that, and um, pretty shortly thereafter, I went to Uganda. We had donated some money, and I'd been going back and forth between Uganda for a couple of years doing mission work uh, out of a, with a group from. Um, Odessa, and I got to know one of the physicians in Uganda really well. So my youngest and I went back to went to Uganda. We had helped build a wing of the hospital there. That's all retired people do. Uh, and and um, <laughs> so we had donated the money. I mean, and really had uh, become a part of that community. And and um, it was about that time that um, his wife showed me a protein supplement that she had come up with made from local grains and she was the daughter of the department of defense head before Idi Amin 
So, you know, she was well-born and smart and articulate. And so I said, well, why don't we make a business of this? So for the next year, I went back and forth between Uganda and the States, thinking that I was going to be a a rich uh, Caucasian entrepreneur and um, live in Uganda part-time. So, I mean, we had contracts with USAID and with the Ugandan government. We'd gotten a handshake uh, with a company out of um, South Korea. Uh, Our board was full of people that were, uh, you know, there were a a chancellor at the University of Kampala. There was an Air Force general, blah, blah, blah. So it looked like we were really headed in the right direction. Plus, I'd agreed to fund it with my own money, and I would get paid back 10 per, by 10% whenever we uh, got the loan from South Korea. Anyway, the, the money was, was slow in coming, and uh, we started, uh, we were going to build a, um, hosp- finish the hospital. Um, we were going to build a hydroelectric plant uh, in a waterfall that my partner and his wife owned the land to. Um, and then they discovered uh, gold in Karamojo, which is kind of the West Texas outback of, of Uganda. And so we were going to do gold mining. So, I mean, it was, it was just <laughs> crazy it, as I looked back about it. But, I mean, I was, I was over there and back nine, ten times and, um, you know, had a driver. We were driving all over Uganda. And I, I remember... One, I loved the people. I mean, I loved the the Ugandan people. They were just so down to earth, so elegant in a really a, a, a an informal way. They just had a real genuineness to them. But um, I remember we were in Kampala, driving back from Galu uh, North, uh, in uh, near, on the border of Sudan, where we were going to actually have the the make make the supplement. And I remember driving in and looking at the skyline, and it, 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 there, there was always a lot of haze and, and fog and smog, but, but it was just lovely. I mean, it was full of life. And I remember thinking, there's just something not right here. And, I, you know, I could hear the voice. I mean, it was saying, Gary, don't don't count on this. You can't keep going this way. And I, I, that voice was there. Um, and you know, we, it was the, 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 the Romans always said that they, you know, had the, the, the person behind them that, that would always say tempus fugit, you know, time, time passes, uh, fast, but I didn't hear that. Um, so I'm in Nevis in our retirement home um, in April of 2013, having just come back from uh, Uganda. And um, I haven't heard from my partner for about two weeks and was kind of worried about that. And then in the middle of the night, I get a call from him and he says, listen, I've, uh, the, the, the local prime minister the, the, in, from our representative to parliament has died suddenly, and they're having an election, 
and I'm going to run for his spot, and I've taken all of our money, and I'm using that to run. So, you know, in, in a blink of an eye, I mean, a whole year of work there, we created an international company, and I'd put in hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, just willy-nilly, uh, and that was gone. So um, I didn't take that well. I mean, it, it was a blow to my ego. Um, I had seen myself in a certain way, that persona, rich, entrepreneurial, um, white guy uh, in Africa. So it was pejorative. It was full of arrogance and ubris. And um, so the next day, I'm sitting on the porch and um, looking at the waves. I mean, the you know, 20 yards there is, is the Caribbean. I mean, this is a beautiful, idyllic place. And this is the retirement home that, that we'd chosen or that had chosen us. And I'm sitting there drinking coffee, and I hear a voice. Sheila, you're a woman and always have been. There's work to do. So um, now, did I hear that voice, Robert? I, I don't know. I mean, it was it, it, there was something resonant that, that was that clear. April the 13th, 2013. I heard it. So I remember going back to my, my to the bedroom and my wife's laying there reading a, a book or something and I, I said, sweetie, I think I'm a woman. And she kind of laughs and says, well, you know, sometimes I think I'm a guy. Um, I mean, uh, you know, well, how would you, what the fuck? I mean, you know, your mate for 40 years comes in and one day says, hey, I think I'm a woman. So... Um, we played with that. I mean, we, we made light of it for a while. But there was a shift in consciousness. Uh, and it, that diamond, that voice, that angel, whatever it was that was represented and was coming out, um, did not go away. It did not dissipate. And so I began to... Um, uh, so this is around when we started having our conversation That's about right. this. Yeah. Yep. So yes. qu quick aside, just because this is, this is how I dovetail into this conversation. Um, when I met you um, at a coffee shop here in Austin, um, we, were, we were already friends by that point, but um, you said, I, I need to meet with you. I got something to talk about, which I always take very seriously, especially when someone doesn't want to have the conversation on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually a pretty, uh, pretty interesting conversation whenever I show up. And, uh, you said, I remember distinctly, you said, um, I'm, I'm going to be um, changing into a woman. And um, I, I don't think I even blinked. If, if I did, it surprised me because I think I was just like, okay, that's great. Um, and so, but that was a very serious conversation. That was not a lighthearted, yeah. uh, joyful conversation yeah. because you are one of those people who has decided to take it upon yourself to be public about it. It's not just, you know, my friends and family know, or, you know, my coworkers know you've, uh, you've taken a different path and become much more social. And that's, uh, that's certainly opening yourself up to a lot of 
naysayers on the internet, um, naysayers around town who maybe don't know you but know of you, um, a lot of people who might have a reason to come after you for right. whatever contrived internal conflict that they've got usually with right. with right. Uh, people that they don't understand. And that conversation was largely around how you protect yourself. Yeah. Um, so before we go any further, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time because th this is just the backstory from my perspective. This right. just gets us to where it gets yeah. really interesting. Um, I think that it is very important for us to be as uh, nice to one another as we possibly can during this, um, which means if I fail to use the right word, you're going to, you're going to stop me and tell me, um, and, uh, I will do my best to use the words I think are best appropriate, okay. but obviously we're, we're both in this together in this conversation. Yes. So, but I think this is how every conversation should be, you know, we're, we're in it together. Um, I'm not on my side. You're not on your side. We're, we're trying to, to work things out. And so I'm going to be as careful with the language as possible, but also there's a lot of really interesting kind of deep issues facing society, um, around transgender yeah. and, um, I think kind of starting it off, why do, why do you think it was so late in life? I mean, one of the reasons I think you're so interesting is it, you are not some 20 year old or 18 year old who just decided on a whim that you're going to go do this right. with zero right. life experience. I hope for the audience's sake, that was a long lead in, but I think it's an important one. You are not somebody who just showed up one day and decided to do this. Um, this was not you just... Yeah. looking at something online to saying, I'm going to do that or whatever you had countless years of very interesting backstory, uh, real life lived, right. um, done a lot of things, been all over the world, ha had a wife, had successful business practices, yeah. um, was the captain of the football team. I mean, all, all of the things that would normally carve people out, jumped out of airplanes. You, you really were the kind of person who should have every bit of distance from this issue as one could possibly hope to have. And yet you still went through with it and very late in life. And so I, yeah. I kind of want to talk about that before we can okay. get into the rest, okay. but like, why, why do you think it took you that long to make this decision? Well, <clears throat> let me just say, so the last two years, uh, ending in, in August of this year, that's when I went back to, um, do a graduate degree in depth psychology <clears throat> and I wanted to, to figure out it from a psychological perspective what what the fuck I mean what was this movement obviously it involved something deeper than just something physical or even emotional it, it was it it was a change in consciousness so those two years I spent in a deep dive there and those turn out to be really the most um so is that before the dsm changed or <clears throat> after this is this is just ending last summer oh okay okay so, so it already changed but it has changed and so by 2015 uh, by 2014 uh let's start there at 2014. so i tell my wife look this and then we go back i go back home and it just won't stop I mean, I, I have this compulsion. Um, Did to, you want it to stop? I, I didn't know what to do with it. Fortunately, I had a therapist, uh, a woman who 
still therapist at 87 to me, for me, who I was able to tell all of this to. So there wasn't any secret going on here. And both of us were perplexed uh, about what this really meant. But this was about the time that Caitlyn Jenner began to transition very publicly. So a lot of her backstory I took really um, to heart and read a lot about what she offered, et cetera. She didn't jump out of airplanes, but she had a very storied career. She um, did. She did. And does. A lot of of, uh, Olympic gold medals. Yep. And, uh, you know, the thing is, is that I could see, I mean, that persona that I had constructed, that Caitlin had constructed over a long period of time, was really in an effort, I think, to suppress um, these this urge to to be something more and more feminine. And um, you know, I don't think we really understand how deep gender goes. Um, you know, I don't think it's it's something that's particularly only biologic or or cultural or genetic. Uh, I think it's all of those things. And, but that interface, though, is such an important determinant about where we are in culture. Alpha male. Uh, this is a patriarchal culture and has been for hundreds of years. So to pick that as, an, as a bifurcation point around gender, then, um, and not even about sexual preference, which is a completely separate issue. But to pick that, it's so dark, it's so, it's so much in shadow in our culture that it triggers in everybody some question uh, about, well, if they did this, what about, you know, it, it. I mean, everyone has some level of femininity and masculinity to some degree. It's a gradient. Yes. I mean, everyone has. <clears throat> you know, done one thing that could be considered slightly effeminate one day. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that no. they're a woman, but also there's people on all parts of that gradient. And this was a completely different thing, Robert. It was a, com- it, it, it was, so you didn't, you didn't, this wasn't just a passing thing for no, you. This wasn't I, like a moment. To, I thought it was, I mean, I, and I hoped that it was superficial. I'd hoped that I could just be a transvestite that I could, Dress in women's clothing. Did you try that first? Uh, I, I did. And so, you know, I got clothing and learned about, I, I didn't know any of this. So um, I remember going to Houston. There was a place down there where you could go and um, have makeup applied, pick a, a dress, go out. And I remember doing that and and loving the way I felt. Hmm. I hated to take the makeup off that day. Which reminded me that when I was in kindergarten, we had a play, and that's the first time I had ever worn lipstick and blush. And I hid because I didn't want to take off the lipstick and blush. So th- this is starting to build a common thread throughout your life. That that was there, and so but the alpha male stuff I think was was an attempt um, to. Um, uh, to compress that uh, to, in, into the unconscious. You were overcorrecting. Uh, I w- certainly. And so that's what that persona, that mask that we all develop, uh, was, uh, was 
it, it was a persona. Is that a common thing um, amongst the transgender community, or is that relatively rare? You know, it... Uh, is there any statistics on it? Or? The, no, I, there probably is. Uh, <laughs> but the, but the, the thing is, what I can tell you, and wor having worked with now, I volunteered for uh, over a year at Kind Clinic doing gender care. So I was the one that would would do history and physicals with transgender men and women and prescribe cross-sex hormones, which seemed to decrease the, the level of dysphoria, which is that the inside and the outside just don't match up. That's the one modifier that I can tell you has is in common with people that are transgender. Inside, outside don't match up. Now, it comes on different points in life for uh, many of us. The, the stories, the economic, socioeconomic background, uh, the, the way things go in life, when the egg cracked and, and you see, came out. This doesn't even seem that strange to me because a lot of bodybuilders, for instance, they see themselves as a very strong man, but they look in the mirror and they're like, uh-oh. I need to put on 50 more pounds of muscle or whatever. That is just a different form of the same sort of thing where you, you really don't feel like you look at all. And that's exactly right. And I, I did bodybuilding for about a year and a half. I, I won a contest at the age of 63. But the thing was is that I was doing it because I was so vain. I knew I was about to start estrogen and didn't want to gain weight. This was the only way that I could determine that I would be at my leanest body mass. Hmm. So I've got pictures of me as a uh, in in before and after. really muscular at 63. But if, the, if you feel feel comfortable doing that, I'd love to put it on the podcast okay. just a before <laughs> yeah. and after. Okay, uh, uh, I'll send you some pictures. Yeah, but um, yeah. but the thing is, is that all through that alpha male period of my life, I mean, there were periods when this would bubble up. I remember um, wearing wife's clothing occasionally. Um, but I mean, it. Uh, and then once they moved uh, to um, Austin and I was alone in Midland in, in my own condominium, then I really uh, kind of dived into it. Again, I thought it was a fetish. I thought that this was something untoward, had no idea although I did share with my therapist during this time what was going on. But about once every three or four months, I'd just get um, ashamed and would throw everything away, throw all the, the makeup, throw all the dresses, anything else uh, that, that I had, and start over. But it was, a, it was a deeper process than I could account for. And so, I mean, it was a drive that did not go away. Then the dysphoria began to show up, and that, that came on later between 2014 and 15 was when the dysphoria really began to, to appear. And that's that. So, so would you say you, you did not, a lot of people say I was born in the wrong body. They used those words. Do you, from what you're telling me right now, this wasn't a born thing. This came later. You might have had other things, but... Was this, did you, do you feel in retrospect that when you were a child, that was, that was really a little girl running around that there was just the wrong, the wrong body? I think that I was born with uh, 
male genitalia and a female soul. Hmm. That uh, that's what I think. I think this whole movement has been a movement of soul. And you're going, well, what is that? Well, that is that psyche. That's that uh, indefinable aspect of us that uh, is something. It's there. And I think that's what has lived me forward. And that's what you'll see today. And I'll, I'll come back. I'll wrap around that and, and tell you uh, how I, why I think that. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing is, is that the dysphoria then changed the game. Uh, in 2014, hmm. it wasn't then. Uh, so dysphoric, dysphoria is where the inside and outside create a, an ambivalence. And so um, it hurts. I mean, it's a deep emotional pain. And it's not like wanting a drink. It's not like that. I mean, it's deeper than that. There was this deep longing for the inside and outside to match up. So... Um, that I, I read something from Caitlyn Jenner that she had started estrogen and it really had helped with her dysphoria. So I found a, uh, the, the guy in San Antonio that was helping me with um, hormonal therapy over the years, testosterone, et, et cetera. Um, I talked to him about it and I said, can I try estrogen and told him the reason. And he said, sure. So we started pellets then and uh, what, what does that mean? Uh, every quarter I get pellets of estrogen put in my buttocks. Interesting. So these are slow, slowly dissolving. Slowly dissolving. But it, it's, a, it's a steady level of estrogen, mm-hmm. really high low doses. Mm-hmm. Um, as we, we, we tried different formulations, et cetera, but the higher the dose did, did me much better. And in what way? How did you feel before and after? Uh, Can I you describe it? I just felt comfortable in my own skin yeah but what way like what were you did you change something about your mentality change did something it, about your... it was a it was a change in consciousness robert and that that's the best i can say is is that i felt this is who i, I felt at the deepest level this is who i am and this is how you should feel and how i should feel the exterior really w- w- was a, a secondary phenomena. It was mostly uh, something that that was a, a change at a deeper level, and, and I'll just say it was a soul level. Uh, this was something uh, beyond spiritual. It was soul doing its work, and so I. That's the way that I explain it now. Sure. Um, but the the thing was is that I even though the dysphoria was helped by the estrogen. I had hard conversations then by 2015 with, with my wife and she says, Hey, listen, I I hear what you're saying. I just can't do this. And so, I mean, I, I honor that. And, um, you know, and she says, and I, the girls aren't going to either. I mean, we're a close-knit family. I mean, after 40 years, uh, married to my best friend, and the, the things that we've done in relationship, in, in a medical marriage to survive w- was miraculous. I mean, and I, this is a beautiful, competent, competent woman. And so here I am saying, okay, I can't be alpha male for you anymore. And she's saying, I can't be, you, I, I can't be there for you in that way. 
it it just that doesn't that crosses my boundaries and so she was very clear and i i honor the way that that she handled it um but it was it was extremely excruciating and so she, at that point you guys broke at, up at, and so well i went back down then to nevis in 2015 and um, was planning on committing suicide and so that's when i knew that, that i linked the dysphoria to that but i'm i i, I have a plan i mean i know how this is going to happen uh, the next so but that night before i'm going to to die the next morning um i'm out underneath the moon full moon and you know i was just out there and i just said hey uh, you know, this is it for me, and I just want to say thank you for, for all of this, but I, I just can't do this anymore. And that same voice that I had heard on the porch says to me, you do what you want. This is all about free will, and you, you're living it. But if you kill yourself, there will be people that you could have helped that will not have that help. I remember feeling and hearing that very clearly. Go ahead. Do what you need to do. But uh, if you do that, it's an ultimately selfish act. There will be people that will not be helped that you could help. This is sort of the doctor's credo in uh, in future tense. You're yeah. doing harm by not uh, being there for them. Uh, and um, I, I think suicide is a soul perspective. I, I think that that that's when I really began to understand what soul was. Uh, it was much deeper than the physician from the outside looking in, making some pejorative decision about this, it, this works and that. I don't think the sociologist, I don't think the politician, I don't think anybody really understands unless you're able to get down into the level of looking at this whole movement, especially with this transgender thing in my life, is a, a movement of soul. So um, anyway, uh, I hear that, and by the next morning I wake up and I realize, hey, I, I can't do this. I mean, I, I can't commit suicide. I've got too much. Um, I've got too much that I need to do. And so I go back and. Um, Again, it, it's a difficult period in that I'm living at home. I remember I drive down to the office uh, over on San Jacinto and um, change clothes, put on makeup, um, work all day um, there with um, Arena Edge or New Republic. And so anyway, uh, and then I'd, take, I'd reverse that and go home take off my clothes, take off my makeup, drive back home. So it was a really a crazy way to live. And it, it tore uh, me to pieces. And, and it, you know, my wife and I, we were just not on the same page. And she was trying the, the best that she could. And um, so, I mean, it, but it was just a really difficult period. 2017, then in August, she goes to Nevis uh, for vacation or, or or whatever i stay home and um i just make the decision i, I i've got I've, I've got to i've got to break from here or i'm going to die in place here and i realized you know i was just 
dying in place. And so I leased a, a place down uh, downtown and moved out in 2017. And, um, you know, my wife, w- when she came back, um, I mean, she was hurt, devastated. Um, I don't think I handled it extremely well. I remember writing her an email that I was going to do <laughs> oh, this. You know. <laughs> email. Um, Perfect way to break up with somebody. Well, you know, it was. It's uh, okay. I won't give you too much shit over it. Well, <laughs> I, but I mean, I remember having the conversation on the bench down there in front of Royal Blue, right across from Mellow Johnny's on a September afternoon. And, you know, I remember my wife, I mean, the, my, my best friend, my mate, sitting there screaming at me, please take your wig off, take that fucking makeup off, I need my husband. So, (laughs) I'm betwixt and between. I mean, I'm I'm caught between knowing that I've got to do something and feeling the guilt uh, of doing it. And, um, and, and, and as opposed to a relationship that had just disintegrated, I mean, I, I loved her even more. I, I love her more today than I did when we, we first met. And, and, uh, that was hard for all of us. Um, so fast forward, um, I start writing a book, um, with, uh, Megan Fitzpatrick was the the editor, and um, really with about thirty vignettes, trying to 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 just um, put images uh, and feelings together uh, throughout my life to kind of figure all this out. So it it, it this was is the calling from the bones, right? A calling from the bones, mm-hmm. and so that was self published, and uh, it's still on Kindle. A calling from the bones. And it, it's 30 vignettes, uh, and we found a good illustrator. I mean, it, it's well done, but it, it's a descriptive of life events from the time I was uh, five onwards uh, through medical practice and then uh, the early part of transition. Can, but, can we talk about transitioning for a minute? Sure. The, the actual act of doing it, because I really think this is not particularly well socialized unless someone really cares about the topic, but... Um, there are many different things that have to happen in this process. Yeah. And um, as a uh, medical professional, you probably have better insight into this process by virtue of osmosis, if nothing else. I'm sure you did your pl- plenty of research beforehand. Um, well, but remember, I volunteered at Kind Clinic. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was able to see that firsthand. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole... Uh, Can you walk uh, us through sort of the what it might go... All the things, all the steps you have to do to fully transition. Yeah. Um, well, let me just say this, Robert, is that there are different uh, uh, bifurcations at every point. Of course. Of course. And some feel uh, with with gender a fluidity. So they come in and out and, and are one thing and then another thing. I, I mean, just... Um, a straight sort of atypical. Ati- 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 atypical. I don't, that's kind of a weird way to phrase that. A typical uh transition between the two but um but with stair steps let's just assume it it all happens and and walk us through i I know what you're saying yeah um 
Caitlyn Jenner. At least. There you go. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, the first thing is, is uh, uh, trying to determine. And, and so when, once that's established, I say I'm transgender. Um, then, then what does that mean? Well, typically, you know, it, it involves uh, therapy, having a, on the team would be a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist um, helps in doing neuropsychometric testing, make sure there's no pathology, uh, nothing that can be hung on you in in those terms. So, um, and then a therapist um, uh, who has some understanding of of the uh, gender and gender dynamics, that's another thing. If if there is a significant other that is going to stay in a relationship, then that... uh, that sort of therapy is begun as early as possible. Mm-hmm. And what about like children or <clears throat> any other people? Same thing. Anybody Same thing. that's directly involved, the earlier that they are engaged uh, in in their own um, uh, process uh, and able to uh, walk through that, the, the better off everybody's going to be. And the reason is this, is that um, we carry images which carry which have a valence which which are information that we project on others and uh, it, it's built into our unconscious we we do it um, without thinking about it but I mean mother carries the the archetype or the the pattern of mother which you know is a timeless energy pattern so my mother carried the archetype of mother. I carried the archetype of father, of physician, um, of mate. And so all of those things are what I carried for others. And um, it's not until I went through the, the master's program and understood this in a little different, in the psychological terms, did I realize the Im- impact of that. But that's what was happening and, and so in an ideal situation, you've got a team uh, that helps you and the family to able to, uh, to, to work with this. Mount Sinai in New York has a, 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 a transgender transition team. They've got a, a um, surgical subspecialty there. And so it, it, it's very much advanced. But uh, the the main thing then there are transgender uh, physicians now that that but hormones next right after hormones then would be have started during this period of time. Okay, cross sex hormones seem to uh, somehow lessen the dysphoria. And is it always these uh, pellets, or is it no, no? Okay. That's just uh, typic- one version. Uh, that that's the expensive version, mm-hmm. and so uh, you can take oral estrogen and spironolactone. Um, uh, female to male is testosterone, mm-hmm. and so um, there. Uh, the younger that you start, the more dramatic the the results are, and so I didn't start using. Uh, I didn't uh, have hormonal replacement therapy uh, until I was in my 60s. So it was late in, in coming. So do you do uh, other drugs to suppress your existing hormones as well? or You, you can. Uh-huh. Uh, spironolactone is something that is prescribed typically from male, from male to female transition. Mm-hmm. And 
theoretically that suppresses um, the um, the testosterone. But ultimately, then the the only way of, of doing that is an orchiectomy or bottom surgery, uh, in which the 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 penis and and the 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 balls and sac or turned into a vagina, and so the the surgery now that uh, can be used for bottom surgery, and not uh, I, there's probably not more than about thirty five percent of transgender men uh, to women, so transgender women that undergo bottom surgery. Thirty five percent. That's pretty low. Yeah. So you know that's about sixty sixty five to seventy percent uh, of us that that don't elect to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still in that middle ground right now where I, I just, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, it, it's a year of recovery time. Um, the surgical procedure has gotten to be fairly common, mm-hmm. and they can uh, create a, a clitoris that uh, allows one to have orgasm. So, so, so they, they actually can reserve some of the sensations, some yes, of the nerve Yes, they can. Yeah. I mean, in, in fact, it's pretty uh, impressive, actually. to... Um, have an orgasm as a transgender woman uh, would uh, is is something to look look forward to, but the the thing is is that in that middle ground between yes this is who I am the 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 psychological um, support that goes with that to the family to to the the transgender woman then uh, extends on. Uh, into then what are the options then in order to feminize. Mm-hmm. And so that's where facial feminization surgery has become such a profound art. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and not everybody uh, does that. One, it's extremely expensive. And so my part is that, you know, I had the resources uh, at that time in order to, to, to have the facial feminization surgery. So I found the best, uh, person in the world and flew up uh, in 2017, put down my money, said, you know, I, I was evaluated. Uh, they walked me through uh, what they did. And so I was plan- the next year, uh, one year later, I would return for facial feminization surgery. So, um, then vocal is that came later. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, breast augmentation came a year after the, um, facial, well, four months after the facial surgery. So this is years of surgery. It sounds like this was 18, 2018. My oldest gets married at our Nevis house. Uh, it, it's in Society Magazine. It's a huge deal. But everybody on my side knows that this is the last time they will see Gary. That after that, the day that I leave to come back to the States, I'm committed to a full transition. So May of 2018 is the last time my wife sees me as Gary. And um, so... September the 12th of 2018, I drive, begin to drive to Boston. Um, 
there's a Dr. Jeffrey Spiegel uh, has a, a clinic there. And um, so the 20th of September of 2018, I underwent a um, 10 hours of surgery. Um, and it was extensive. I mean, they make a, an incision across the scalp. Uh, they pull down the scalp. Males have uh, frontal bossing that, that's prominent here. So they shave down the bone, um, pull back the scalp, um, raise the eyebrows, blepharoplasty uh, of the eyelids. They put implants here and here. Around the cheekbones for those in, on the In, in <laughs> on my audio. jaw, they lifted this lip up. Um, they injected my fat, uh, they shaved off the Adam's apple and, um, did a nose job. And then, um, there were a couple of little lesions that were, were trimmed off. But I mean, this was 10 to 12 hours of surgery, you know, and by that time I'm 68. So that's pretty risky uh, surgery. It, well, it was, it was extensive. I mean, it was just extensive. But the, the thing is though, Robert, is that I remember waking up. 13 hours later, in uh, under a, an anesthesia in a darkened room, didn't know where I was, but the first thing that I hear is that voice, Sheila, you've done good. So, I mean, I ne uh, the, the, the grotesque image, the, the, the grotesque swelling that you might imagine from that, sure. my brother uh, and cousin both volunteered to spend a week uh, in a little place out on the main coast, um, uh, outside of Boston, at, at Massachusetts coast, out on the um, in Rockport, taking care of me. And so, my brother, my brother, uh, two days. I spent two days in the hospital. I'm swollen, and I'll, I'll never forget. My, I'm sitting there and kind of nodding off, and my brother sitting where you are. And he goes, "Bro, I just want you to know." Your fucking face looks like a basketball. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, my brother always uh, Tells you how it is. is the one to, to, to help ground <laughs> me. My, my cousin um, did the same thing. So two weeks up there and then um, I drove back. I drove back by myself. Mm -hmm. But that was that was the bifurcation. I mean, that's when you believe Sheila was really that's born. when I knew Sheila was was was. Uh, an entity. Um, December, I did um, breast augmentation. And about that time, Robert, I, what you speak to, I mean, I, I, I didn't have any clothes, so I, I somehow I found M.M. Lafleur, which is a, a wonderful uh, uh, professional women's clothing line, and so got to know their the CEO. Um, and so they... I flew up to, to New York and was selected as their woman of the week. And so they took pictures and everything. So I was all over the internet as, as MML4 woman of the week. That served me as well as could because that story was what I could always refer back to and say. So people who didn't know, you could send yep, them this article. Send them that. Mm -hmm. So um, now. in and, during, how, and how did that go? How did. Oh, I loved it. No, I mean, no. I mean, how did it go with your friends and the people you shared it with? Well, um, so 2000, January of 2000, 
2017, 2018. Now, I write to 10, 12 people who I've been very close with, ranging from a former governor to CEO of Procter & Gamble, um, West Point classmates, physicians, blah, 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 and say, hey, listen, I figured out I'm transgender, I'm transitioning, and just want you to know. Robert, that, that's that naivete that I had initially that, oh, well, I've figured this out. Everybody's going to be really happy about that. And, you know, what I realized, you know, about half of those, nobody said anything untoward. Hmm. But I haven't heard from maybe five of those people ever after that. So um, it, it, was a, it was an eye-opener. The thing that really helped me, though, is that I was on a – I was on the developmental board of the Association of Graduates at West Point. We, Beverly and I had given money there uh, after retirement and, and had money. And um, so I stayed on that development board. And actually, it was um, in 2014 in May when I was at a meeting up there for the development board that I was talking with... Uh, somebody that, that worked at West Point in the Association of Graduates who I was a good friend with. And, and she said, oh, did you know that there was a Marine here by the name of Kristen Beck who had who, who was transgender, was here a couple of weeks ago and um, well, it transitioned and has a now has a, a documentary out. You might want to see that. I went back at lunch and watched that and broke down in tears, that's when I knew exactly what this was. And that was then 2013-14. So it wasn't until I saw um, uh, Lady Valor, Lady of Valor uh, is the name of that, but it was about his transition, and I realized that's what this was. Hmm. So, um, but fast forward... um, once I got back here and um, had had the facial surgery, then the, the uh, breast augmentation, the following May I went and they tied off the bottom port of my uh, vocal cords. Uh, and then I couldn't talk for three weeks and then began to... <laughs> Is that a blessing or uh, a curse? <laughs> well, you know, I, I can't scream now. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, the, the pitch and register are a little higher but it's a completely different way of expressing myself. Mm. And so it feels much more authentic to me uh, in the way that I, I hear myself. Mm. And it may not sound differently, but I feel differently. And I know that I can't scream. And so that's another thing. But the, the, the thing is, is that um, during that period of time uh, that I... I realized that there was some, this was a deeper movement than just the physical. And that fortunately I had, uh, I was, uh, had a compulsion to, to look as feminine as I could. And there uh, is a, a, a whole grade uh, of the way that people who say that they are, who, who say I am a transgender woman, there's a whole spectrum of the way that people present that that gender uh, um, uh, to the world. 
its gender expression. So uh, that's an individual thing. And um, having the resources uh, to do this was really uh, phenomenally important. I mean, is it really any different than tomboys of old? I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's, it's all gradients. It's gradients. uh, But and, um, you know, if I had all the money in the world, I mean, I would set up a scholarship program and I'd talk with Dr. Spiegel about doing this to to give women a scholarship in order to do the facial feminization surgery if if that's what they 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 wanted. But uh, where I really felt affirmed was uh, in my um, time at West Point. I kept going back to the meetings and um, stayed uh, current with the um, Association of Graduates. And so I would show up at big events. um, And the the way that my classmates helped, the interest that they took, uh, in fact, it was May of April of 2000. 19, 18 that I, or 19 that I sat down with them. There's about nine of them that had come back for a meeting and they wanted to hear my own story from me. They took the time to sit down and say, Sheila, what, what is all this about? So I told my story and the way that I was able, I think to get past all of this, Robert, with the, with the people at West Point is that I said, say, this and it's the truth nobody gets through those gates without feeling a calling you just don't happen to come to west point there is a calling it's part and parcel of getting through those gates i said this is another iteration of that this was a calling i heard it in the same terms as i did about going coming here going to medical school and um, being transgender so what what do you feel like your relationship is to your old self now? Like when you look back, is that a different person or is that just a different evolution of yourself? Like how do you how do you internalize your previous life? Well, um, does it feel like a movie you watched, or does it feel like it was you? I, I have watched it, and uh, <laughs> so I mean, here's here's what happened. Two thousand two, I'm in Las Vegas on a trip. A vacation trip and I'm leaving the hotel room suite and I'm about to close the door I turn and look at the bed and there's a woman sitting on the bed naked from the west up and she's looking at me over uh, her, my her left shoulder and she smiles at me and uh, I mean as real as you are and so I see that from here to there and, um, I mean, I'm just amazed. I've never seen an apparition. I've never seen a ghost. This was an apparition. It was a waking dream. But uh, I closed my eyes and opened, and she was gone. Flash forward, I'm at a, a conference at Pacifica Graduate Institute, 2019. I go to the bathroom. I'm sitting there washing my hands in the women's bathroom, I look in the mirror and realize that the it hits me, the epiphany. That face of the woman on the bed in 2002 was my face. Now, so that image, in certain terms, had lived me forward. 
And so that's why I say, you know, if you want to frame this as far as movement, something has lived me forward uh, in, in certain terms. Some are, you, are you in friendly terms with your old self, or does that feel... Well, here's, here's the thing. My women, my, Beverly and my girls taught me. And what they did very early on after I said to the, it was Christmas of 2018, right after my daughter had gotten married and um, we'd done that in Nevis, they go to Big Spring where we're all, where my wife and I are both from. She's about nine years younger. But they go up on the mountain that, um, mountain, it's a it's scenic mountain uh, overlooking the, the, the plains there. And that's where my wife and I had gotten engaged um, back in uh 1979. <coughs> Excuse me. So they have a ceremony and they bury Gary up there. Hmm. So it was a way for them to, I mean, they didn't know what else to do. Uh, and so that was a way for all of them to have closure. And so, and you um, weren't invited to your own funeral. No, I mean, by that time, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, the, the next between 2018, 2019 into 20 were really hard years and trying to just try to stay up with each other and stay in each other's lives in, in ways uh, that were important. Um, Beverly and I still were, were married, are married, um, have, some finances that we do together. Um, she's got her own home. Um, and so, you know, those those were things that we negotiated, um, but it took a lot of giving on each of us of our part. But the thing was is that it hadn't been until fairly recently that I had to really look and see what I felt in regards to 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 Gary. And when I when I look at that epitaph, um, I, I can only compare it to what I feel I am now as a as a transgender woman. Gary was was a a, a, a wonderful alpha male that did his best. I, I miss being sure um, certain of things in that alpha male way of saying, this is the way that it is. This is the way we'll be. Um, I, I miss being certain in ways that I know that just aren't real, but it, that persona. I think you're me. underestimating yourself. Um, I was for the audience here. This uh, studio is sometimes extremely cold and sometimes it's very warm and comfortable like right now. And uh, I was warning Sheila, like, you might want to have layers because uh, it was cold, really cold one day with Raymond. Oof, it was like freezer in here. And <laughs> we were both complaining. And um, and I remember saying that to you, and you're like, I went through ranger school. I'm going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think you uh, you have a lot more strength than you. Well, and I acknowledge that. And especially, you know, in the transition, I realized that the, that strength, though, is at a deeper level than just the persona. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the child, the childish, emotionally sensitive, grandiose, uh, individual, um, I think was able to be expressed in, in those masculine terms. 
And, and so now, I mean, I feel I, I'm the same entity, and yet there's it's a gent, kinder, gentler version of me um, that looks and 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 speaks in a different way. Now, there was a two other things I want to tell you, surgery wise, is that. I didn't do anything to protect my skin for 40 years. Hmm. You know, I, I took great uh, pride that I, I never wore sunscreen, didn't bother about that, wind, weather, whatever. So I've gone through two deep laser surgeries um, with the local plastic surgeon where they completely uh, took down, under general anesthesia, took down the, the layers and, and it's just all scabbed for two weeks and um, but it was the only way to get texture back in which to look uh, to have uh, feminine skin mm-hmm. so um, I mean I, I've, I've I've done what I think that I need to do and so order. wear sunscreen is the more well, and, and I <laughs> it's built into the makeup yeah. but um, to answer your question um, well why don't we get into the next question because okay. it's related all right so um, there is a lot of controversy around the concept of dead naming. So I don't think I've slipped up once, although when I first met you, you were Gary. And I was actually a little worried about this because, it, you know, sometimes it's in my head yeah. and you're Gary yeah. just because that's how I first met you. Um, first of all, wh- what do you think about your old name? But I think a, a more important question is, is that really... A something that the rest of the population should be upset about if someone does that, if they're doing it accidentally, how can you tell someone's motives? This this is a really kind of a deep, unfortunately, yeah, prob- probably a stupidly deep question because <laughs> it is. I misname people all the time. Uh, <laughs> hey Bob, and you're actually Joe or whatever, you know. So, well, you know, I think it it shows where we are culturally. I mean, here's the the place that I know uh, is that, so I love college football. I've always been an Aggie. And so I I follow uh, um, football recruiting. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of sites that I watch uh, and and keep up with. And and I read the the comments. And these are, so the, the typical... Extroverted, sensate, thinking, judgmental, alpha male is what rules our culture. It's what it, it typology is something that Jung, Carl Jung, developed early on, and it's 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 continued to 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 be used in order to to try to 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 characterize certain um, ego syntonic and dystonic functions. There there. Are there are four functions that we use to, in in consciousness, and that's feeling, sensation, intuition, uh, and thinking. Uh, thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition, all those four. And each of those has an extroverted pattern and an introverted pattern. We all have those eight. How they're arranged is different uh, with the 16 different personality types. So you've got four that are, uh, and, and usually we use the first two very um, ad- adeptly, but especially with sensate thinkers, 
everything extroverted. It's all out here. And anything that goes past the skin just doesn't exist. It, it might, and it might be, but typically it's in religious terms, not spiritual. So the, the thing is, is that judgment along those lines, that's the way um, that culturally we've been raised uh, it, it, since the, for a long time. So to, to answer your questions, most of those guys go, well, what the fuck? You know, they've got a dick. They're, they're, they're a male. I mean, if they, they call themselves a female, that's just crazy. That's just crazy. So that's, that's that pejorative view of the way that things are. So, but then there are a whole another half that are introverted and have intuition and feeling functions. And those are the ones that look, uh, that are able to, to sense some of the, the things that we're talking about, uh, especially around soul. Jung's model has four functions and then that are in, that are ego conscious and then four that are unconscious and the guardian between conscious and unconscious realm is something called anima or animus. So those are gendered energetics, but we all, we have all of us have them. One so one one is the anima or soul, the other is spirit. So it's a way of thinking of those terms. Do that does that exist in 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 reality? It does in some shape, form, or fashion. But it's a way of thinking that there is a doorway that 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 the soul opens to. And even if you don't believe in those things, you have to believe there is some state between exactly. being awake and asleep. Yep. And that transition, there's some lucidity, there's some ability to control your dream state and have some sensation that a waking dream or other things like that. So Well, but the other part about that is, Robert, is that most of the extroverted sensate thinkers um don't uh, don't acknowledge that there is an unconscious that uh there is something that you know the ego is just a very small part of the the universe and the ego throw, throw a ball at them and then they'll figure out what the unconscious well, brain does <laughs> <laughs> well and so as 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 death approaches then that those unconscious things begin to bubble up and so that's what we begin to see as life goes forward is that these complexes, these energetics that are deep in the, in the ocean begin to bubble up and you can do whatever you want with them. That's what came through when I was uh, in 2014, something from the unconscious and you've seen Dune mm -hmm. and the, the first, the first scene in Dune is the Sardaukar warrior and says, Dreams are messages from the deep. That's the way Dune starts. And so, you know, again, it's out there now that there's something more than just this little ego. And the other thing is that I, I know from my AA background is that the, the ego thinks that it's separate from self, God, goddess. But there's always an attachment. The bigger this thing gets and the more remote this gets, then this thing thinks that it rules everything. 
the 12 steps are just a way of keeping it small. And this thing being the ego for those listening. <laughs> that, that, the, the ego uh, then also recognizes that it is attached to something larger and is part of something bigger. So with with your name, your old name, yep. Gary, yep. Um, if, if someone calls you that, do you assume the worst of them? Do you assume that they just don't know? Are you assuming that they're just trying to get your attention and trying to get you from walking out in front of traffic or something? Like, how do you feel when that name is used? Well, I mean, by this time, I mean, so I'm now seven years into this, deep Mm -hmm. into this. So I can kind of tell when somebody looks at me and, and by now, I mean, I know that I'm, I'm Pat, I can pass. So if somebody call dead names me, then it's an, it's an intent, uh, just to say something irascible. Hmm. So, you know, the, the and thing, does that happen? Do you? No, okay. not, not now. Okay. It doesn't. Um, but the, the thing is, is that those who are uh, early on in, in that transition, if somebody, especially family call me uh, dead maiden to me, then it, it was an ego thing. I mean, you know, it hurt. Uh, you, you aren't respecting my boundaries. It, it gets to be an, an, an ego boundary thing. Um, and so for a lot of, uh, a lot of folks that are transgender, um, you know, they're very sensitive about it. And so I, I think that the, the, the wisest thing to do, the, mo- the, the most compassionate thing to do is to, to, to listen to what the, the pronouns say. It, we'll, we'll get the pronouns in a second, okay. but, but I think, um, I think t- if I'm going to try to, to, uh, steel man this argument as much as possible, yeah. it reminds me a lot of when women change their last name after marriage. Okay. And if you start calling them by their old name consistently, the, like you might get away with it once or twice, but then after a while they'll start correcting you. Like, no, that isn't my name. I, my name is this now. And they're, they're very proud of this new name and they well, don't want now, you to use let, it anymore. Let me just say this sure. is that the, the hurdles that you've got to go to change your name also make that a, a, a really important marker in gender transition. So, I mean, that's what I did at Kind Clinic. Also, I signed the paperwork. You go down to the, to the courthouse. So legally, Gary's dead. And so to be called Gary um, now is unusual, but it, especially with our oil and gas stuff, I mean, you know, that's what's on the deed. So, I mean, I'm called back into that. So it's not, but I'm, I'm more desensitized to that now than right after I changed my name uh, and had a, a paper. I remember going to get my license changed. Interesting. So you're saying you got m- more sensitive immediately afterwards and less sensitive over time? Exactly. Interesting. And, well, I mean, uh, going to the the DPS to get my license uh, as Sheila uh, w- was a remarkable day. I, you know, dressed up and, you know, it's before I had surgery and, and all. It was a big deal. As it turned out, they misspelled Sheila. Uh-oh. <laughs> which I didn't realize until much later. Well, your the name on your driver's license has to match up exactly on your passport. So I had to go back and get it done. But the thing was is that just that movement and the energy that it took to change names, 
it, it was a sensitive thing. So if my wife called me and called me Gary, I would have, you know, said no, that, hey, listen to me. So I, I would have called anybody on it. As things go on over a period of time, I get less sensitive to that. But it becomes less of an issue because of so what, I suspect what if doing. a lot of people are still in that, if that is true yep. of everybody, yep. that yep. a lot of people are still in that earlier phase. They yep. haven't had seven years behind, under their belt of being this new name. Yes. And so maybe that's some of what we're seeing here. Well, and I think I, I think it goes to that culture of compassion is that, uh, okay, it may not mean anything to, to you, but it may mean something to me. And just that fact that it may, uh, uh, it, it, it may not it may not be abrasive, uh, but it may not be compassionate to, to call me by that name. So what about in situations, uh, Caitlyn Jenner is a perfect example of that, where yeah. if you look back in time and Caitlyn Jenner didn't win those medals, yeah. Yeah. Um, at least not, you know, look at these old books and right. that's not, it's, right. the name isn't Caitlyn. You certainly, I mean, you said you have deeds with your old name on it. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's plaques somewhere with your name on it. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, how how much, how allergic are you to that old name to get, start erasing, it, erasing history is really what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, and again, I can't recreate, I, I can't restructure history. I mean, that that name is part of who I am. But, I mean, you could and what? make a demand to have the plaque erased well, or, and, and again, or whatever I, we're talking about. Uh, at West Point, I mean, you know, I'm Sheila Grace Newsom on, on the, the class of 73 role. Um, I've changed my medical license. I've changed uh, all of those things that I can, but that that somebody calls and wants to know, uh, to talk to Gary Don Newsom about a, a lease in Howard County, then, I mean, it doesn't offend me. Sure. So, but again... That is uh, a perspective that I've developed over a period of time. A and, Robert, I mean, you, you know those folks that will drag things out in order just to piss you off. Of course. And so there are those, and I just try to stay away uh, and out of those sorts of... of Internet trolls will some find you yep. somehow, but yep. you can just don't feed them. <laughs> yep. Amen. So let's talk about pronouns. Okay. Uh, this is another very similar issue to dead naming, but um, I think that it's a bigger problem because if I say my pronoun is attack helicopter and you need to refer to me as attack helicopter, um, who wins that fight? Um, and and this is this is a very serious issue because we're getting into issues where we have to have more boxes that you have to fill out sure. or more things like Mrs. Mr. Other, other, this other, yeah. other, you know, yeah. and, um, but also, um, there's bills in other countries, Canada being one of them where it's actually illegal to use the wrong pronouns, um, which is, I don't know exactly how that's even enforceable, just pulling someone off the street just because yeah. they don't know. And also, the other problem is they can change from moment to moment. There's really no reason why one pronoun has to be the one pronoun. I can decide I'm this one minute, this other, the other. Sure. And there's no finite list of them. They can, there can be hundreds or thousands of these. Um, there is no known number anyway that right. anyone can agree upon. 
um, other than a lot of people seem to want to make it a very small number because that makes it manageable. Um, the one pronoun that I think is most strange from just an English-speaking perspective is yeah. they. Yeah. Uh, because, like, they went to the store. Oh, yeah? Who went to the store? You end up yeah. having to ask the question, no, the, uh, the person referred to as the, you know what I mean? It adds right. a lot of complexity right. to that conversation. Um, I don't personally have a problem calling people by whatever pronouns they have. I actually no problem with that whatsoever. But I can see why there's a lot of consternation amongst people who just want to be able to have a conversation with somebody. Like, why, why does it be any more complicated than just, you know, he said, she said. Um, and more particularly, if I don't know what you are and I accidentally mispronoun you yeah. um, because not everyone's wearing that on their name tag. Right. Um, how culpable of a crime, what, what crime have I committed exactly? Have I, do I have to ask your pronouns before I begin talking to every single person? Like, wh how do you see that whole thing? Well, uh, you know, let, let's put it in the same basket as race. Um, you know, I, I think that we have become more sensitive over a period of time with uh, approaching race in a certain way. Gender, for those of us who have gone through the early battles and see gender as a contesting point, <clears throat> feel, some of us feel that, you know, we've made a declaration about who we are. Now, being called, the pronouns, to my way of thinking, just become a control issue. It becomes a battleground in which, it, 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 if you're not going to acknowledge that, then you know that's a completely sub. That's a completely different subset. A lot of people do feed the trolls, and so. they do, and they do. And so, if someone starts mispronouncing you. Um, and, and so, I mean, to get, but again, to get dragged into that battle, it it's just a. a it's an ego issue, uh, and my uh, battling these samskaras, the these issues between us, and trying to inflate that over the pronouns just is a no win for anybody. And so that's why you know if if somebody is gonna the the pronouns, I think are way to honor what somebody feels about their own journey. And either you're going to, to do that or you're not. So, but again, that line about how far to, to honor or how compassionate to be around those issues is a personal decision. And either you are or you aren't. And there's not much I'm going to be able to do to change your mind by necess necessitating that you call me this and that. I'd, I'd, it's just a no, it's no win. But again, I think those are, are items that have become politicized. Of course, yeah. And that's uh, that's what happens. It galvanizes those unconscious factors that we're talking about in that deep ocean, and that little ego is right on top of that. But this is a collective unconscious. And so I think that those issues those complex issues that have a complex like that, that have valence and are able to, to, to galvanize different responses from one to the other, you're never going to win one versus the other. So all that you can, all I can do is hope that, 
hey, if you know that I'm, uh, these are my pronouns and have the, uh, and respect me enough to ask what those pronouns are. What are your pronouns? Uh, she, uh, she mm-hmm. and her. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, but again, the way I look now, the way I sound, the way I dress, the, the, those things, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not misgendered now, typically. But uh, again, uh, if somebody does that, I realize it's not my problem; it's their problem. Now that's seven years, eight years into this, you and having pers- done, a, you got some time under your belt. Done a lot of lot of work, sure. But um, somebody young, uh, in, in just getting out, uh, fighting tooth and nail with family, friends to to establish who they are from a gender perspective, completely understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I realized, though, that there's a whole cultural inertia that sees this a- as being a- a representative uh, of a, a softening, uh, a-, a feminization of culture that is antithetical to the way they think. Mm-hmm. And so I realized it's a battleground. It's not going to go away easily. Well, I'm just going to keep hitting you with these. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, good. So I, uh, another one is the identification of oneself somehow confers rights. For instance, if I decide um, I'm in I'm in prison, let's say, I decide that I'm a woman, but nothing has happened. I mean, there, other than me making that decision. Yeah. Um, do I now get to be going to the women's prison? And what point do we decide? that there even is such a thing as men's and women's prisons, or is this all just some big muddy mess of lots of shades of gray? Like what, what, what point do we go from, I get to decide, identify to there being actually some reason that this person shouldn't be in men's prison as an example. Well, this is an extreme example, but I think it, no, these edge I, cases are kind of where the, we can find some, some understanding. Well, again, you know, you're talking about, um, institutional inertia. And so especially once you get into the midst uh, of the military uh, or the uh, prison system, um, any of those uh, that have systemic inertia and try to, to, to navigate that by claiming one something along the lines of gender, it's going to be really difficult. And so that's why I, I think that those are issues that need to be uh, cl- clear very early. So um, no, no opinion on how that should play out. I think your, your voice might actually pull some, well, pull some strings and add some weight to this. You know, the, if you had your druthers, if someone is in prison, they just say, I'm a woman, but would, what would you do? But you're asking that in the, the, the voice of Dan Patrick. Uh, of somebody that has a political agenda in order to say yes or no, you have this right or you don't. Yeah. So uh, uh, drawing that line around... I'm not saying that they, they're right or wrong and uh, or even that they do or don't believe it. I'm just saying, what would you would you say, okay, now we got to put you through steps to understand what the real situation is well, or... What I, I do think, though, is that we need a sensitivity. If somebody does bring that up, 
in within an institution. It's the same thing that happens in military. Uh, good friend of mine produced a, a film called Trans Military. Mm-hmm. What do you do with those people that entered, served well, decided 15 years in that they were some other gender? What do you do with that? Well, from an institutional standpoint, you've got to have things in place in order to address what that might mean. And so there should be certain steps. Same thing within the prison system. Same thing uh, within um, uh, any institution. When somebody says, I think this is something that has happened here that I'm feeling, then you, 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 you send them down a certain quarter in order for them to establish and if they if if they if that's verifiable or if it's um, if it's uh, if it's determined that that is something legitimate that we've talked about here along those lines, then you confer them into whatever gender they feel that they are. If it's or a, maybe prisons are totally broken from the ground up. And well, <laughs> exactly, and I, I think that may be. Maybe that's a greater, uh, a, a greater question issue. <laughs> for a different day. But, but you know, I think that the main thing is is it, it requires institutions from schools uh, to, to, to hospitals to, um, to military uh, to the, the prison system need. Uh, we're, we're advanced enough from a cultural standpoint to have means of changing of addressing those sorts of changes. And it's the same thing that race has taught us. You've got to be able to address um, institutional racism. And in this way, this, this is genderism. And so I think those, are, they may not be exactly the same, in, in a lot of You're different ways. You're going to get a ways. lot of hate mail for that one. <laughs> well, but the thing is, is that the way in which institutions have to learn to address that yeah, it's similar, is. Similar design. Yeah, I and, get you. So it, it, all that it says, I think, about our institutions is that we're capable of evolving over a period of time based on the uh, inner work, um, in, in the interior of what people see themselves as. And... Um, I think that we've given permission to people now to to make that change and and declare one way or the other throughout life. And so that's what I see that I'm most thankful for is that um, I was able to go through something that involved suicide and death. And death is the modifier. Suicide's the modifier with all of this. In my, to my way of thinking, is that um, I mean, forty percent of all transgender men and women, uh, you know, commit uh, try to commit suicide, wow. and most of them think about it before trying to transition or after it, or uh, over the, the arc of the lifetime. Okay. So, if forty percent are willing to die over this issue or the ambivalence associated with it. It's something to do with something really deep. And so that's why I think that uh, it's so important to address this in those institutional terms is because of, of what, what it does to quality of life and, and um, death. Let's, uh, let's talk about 
my least favorite topic of all of these, uh, trans bathroom rights. Uh, <laughs> this is one of those that just keeps it keeps rearing its head. I don't know how this just keeps coming up, but uh, we well, can, we don't have to spend much time on this. But I, I'm just curious. But if you again, got any, I, I uh, think any it, on it's this one. It, it's that ability to to pick a subject like this that is so polarizing uh, that e- you either agree with it or you don't. A- and it, it, I'm not going to change you one way or the other. So my, but you again, might change me. I don't know about well, the rest but of the I mean, <laughs> and I mean, I've got a pretty open mind. You can, uh, well, I mean, I, I had to learn pretty early on to be able to pee in the car while I was driving because I didn't want to stop and try to, to find a gas station. When I was going back to, to West Texas, I just I, I just didn't want to mess with that. So, but the the again, I think this because it, you were you feared that someone might try to hurt you. Is that why? You know, I just didn't want to go through the drama, uh, and, and especially before I had facial feminization surgery and breast and everything else. I mean, now you know, I, it, it it would not be such a big issue. But uh, again, it, it becomes. A political football uh, to be played one versus the other, and I don't think it, it's a political thing. I just think that again, uh, it, it's a, a matter of institutional inertia. So, so I think it's it's literally a matter of architecture. We we yeah. have this pretty terrible design where there's just two bathrooms yeah. and um, yeah. no no meaningful stalls between them. Uh, where there's like a foot of gap on top and if you've spent much time in Europe, for instance, every bathroom is completely isolated. And who cares who's going in, well, which one or not? And now, I mean, you go to Bucky's. I mean, those are the bathrooms of the future. I mean, you know, you've got a you've you've got walled off in, interior, and even if male goes to one side and female goes to the other, at least they're walled off and there's privacy there. Mm-hmm. So I I think that the that making um, bathrooms it, usable by either gender makes sense. The W here in Austin is a, another yep. perfect example yep. where they have, the, it's not just separate stalls, which I think is also great, right. but also separate sinks. Yep. So you really, yep. there's yep. everyone uses whatever. But the problem with this and why I think it actually is worth talking about is if I was a nation state trying to figure out a way to cause billions of dollars worth of damage to the United States, ba- making every small business change their bathrooms, it seems like a great way to do it. Um, it costs nothing to cause that kind of conflict. So yeah, I can see why small businesses are very hesitant to go, oh, this is just a mess. I'm going to have to change plumbing. I'm going to have and to. Robert, I, I grew up with, you know, my father owned a grocery store, mm-hmm. a couple of them. And yeah. so Can you imagine I mean, having that, to retrofit your bathroom. That would have been a big deal. <laughs> sure. But, and, you know, again, I think it points to common sense. So you make regulations that, you know, if you're a certain, you know, age uh, in uh, your, your businesses uh, that you phase those in over a period of time or mm-hmm. whatever. But I mean, how invasive is government in most everybody's life these days? <laughs> so, well, I don't uh, think you're going to win any. Uh, I mean, OSHA, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the the things that I had to, to do late in my career uh, with um, in in medicine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, were, were just uh, atrocious and took time and care away from 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 patients. So 
anyway, don't get me started on that. <laughs> but, and the legitimate point I think that you make is, is that there is, there's a common sense way to approach this and it, re, it, but it does require a certain openness on both sides. And I mean, both sides uh, uh, around uh, race and gender are very much entrenched right now. And I'm hopeful that we don't have this divisive divisiveness exploited even more in the next four to eight years. You know, it seems like if, if, um, transgender community really wanted this problem solved, they would sponsor bills to have the government pay small businesses to retrofit their bathrooms according to some code. But Robert, I think that's the thing that we're, we're, we're seeing though, is that this is an easy football for a patriarchal culture to, to, to pick and say, see, these people want something nicer bathrooms yeah. <laughs> and, and, not, not not just transgendered oh you could also make it nice <laughs> but you know the thing is that the transgender issue gets to be a political football and it galvanizes votes and so um that's the this harm that i see is is it okay transgender is one thing then the then it gets bigger than that uh, you know it gets to be color of skin, religion, et cetera. And so I don't think that that is the, I don't think that's the bifurcation. I don't think those are the modifiers that we want to, to have as an advanced culture to pick on to say, you know, this is, this is not your right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's everybody's right to, to make those decisions. Now, how to honor that it, it becomes something involved with law, and, and law has involved everything in our lives now. So it gets to be more and more. Um, the libertarians, I can just hear them screaming right now. <laughs> okay, how about trans and sports? Uh, so there's a lot of controversy around this yeah. where um, uh, men who have transitioned into women are now in women's sports. And dominating them often, um, not always, obviously, but often. Um, should that be the? Should that be allowed from your perspective? But also, <coughs> is that taking something away from women to allow that uh, biologically born women? I should. Say. And again, Robert, I speak for nobody. Of, except, of course not. Except but but I think I think your voice is very useful. Well, you have a lot of perspective. Here's the thing that I would say is is that. I used lots of testosterone um, for erectile dysfunction, then to body build. I know what lots of testosterone means. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, it's, it, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, you look at the, the seventies and, and, eighties uh, and performance enhancement and, and, you know, and football and baseball and, and all. And so, um, I think if there is an, an advantage given to competing individual by the use uh, of hormones mm -hmm. that... Um, and blood doping and never, all these other well, things. I mean, they're all kind of in the same category of you know, improvements. I, the, the blood doping thing is... is I I mean, mean, I'm just putting it in the same category of all these different things that do provide the, advantages. I think the blood doping thing's different 
in that the amount of change that you can get from EPO in blood volume it is testosterone's more is what you're saying. Lance Armstrong still had to, to race those miles. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not he had a matocrit of 48 or 54 was not the thing that, that, that made that happen. Now, testosterone for female, for females to males, I think, uh, uh, now is that an equal competition that, is created there i don't know i think it's an individual basis and so i think that is devolves on each of uh, on the the state school district uh, state and the school districts to decide what those policies are but what i would say is i think that if an advantage is given with hormonal therapy in, in one versus the other uh, with 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 somebody using that um, that gives him an unfair advantage as far as strength or speed, uh, then I, I, you know, I, I have problems with that. Um, and I know that would be, that's going to, would be unpopular, you know, especially in, in, in some uh, uh, conditions though, and in, in some states. But my way of thinking, if it gives an unfair advantage of a, of a competitor over somebody else in, in that um, uh, gendered class, then I don't think that's fair. I mean, it's by definition not fair if it's unfair, right? So it's it's difficult to find fault in that logic. Um, but do you think that it's unfair to the women um, to have men who have, you know, spent, let's say, 20 years of their life um, and they're transitioning in college, let's say, and so they've had all the advantages of testosterone through their system, they, more bone uh, density, mm. muscle mass, et cetera. Now, now I can tell you from a personal perspective is that, especially from male to, to female, is that the effects of the testosterone uh, uh, diminish pretty quickly. And so, um, you know, I, now there is a certain residual amount of testosterone that's produced uh, e even with suppression, unless there there are bilateral orchectomies and and the the balls are taken out, but the thing is is that I now the, what I would say so I don't think that the female uh, the male to female is as big an issue as female to male in which testosterone is part of the therapy and the regimen. Interesting, and. I think most people's problem is the other way around, so it's kind of curious that. Well, you know, you look at uh, the transmilitary is a really interesting documentary, and it shows exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, there are, uh, you know, female to male, uh, and you would never. Yeah, they are. Believe uh, that. They are very strong-looking individuals. Yes, they are. <laughs> they yes, they are. Just entirely built of muscle. It's amazing. Yeah. So, I think one thing that. Um, this, this starts talking about children, but I think before we get into the children part, yeah. um, I know that there is a certain group of people who feel like they have a lot of regret post op usually, uh, or, um, at some point they start feeling like that was a big mistake, like what they did. I I've read studies. I think the number is no more than about 2% in the studies that I've read. 2%. Two percent, uh, and now what? What goes on over a long period of time? You know, I think 
your numbers here by the questions that you asked me is that we we said 1.4 million in the U.S. I, I think Something it's like that. M- I think it's m- much greater than that. I think uh-huh. that it it it's probably closer to three percent worldwide. Then that turns into a, a lot of people. Three percent of the population is transgender. I think so. Wow. Yeah. Or or questioning, questioning. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um. So, I mean, in, in that gender questioning uh, category. And only 10% are um, homosexual. Um, so that, I, I've seen upwards to 15%. 15%. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so. again, but uh, again, you're talking about a minority and, you, and you're, you're, you're talking about the, the, the way that it shapes in, in regards to a majority. And so, um, well, what are we going to to? How do you want to? Well, to move would it, in? would it would that uh, indicate that we need to do more education up front, uh, or is it simply a matter that it doesn't matter how much you educate these people ahead of time, they're just not no. going to know until they know. No, I I know I know the answer to the. I mean, I I I see that <clears throat> one. It's surprising that there isn't more regret. Uh, that uh, well, know, why why do you say that? That's curious. Well, I mean, because uh, it's so life changing. Two percent, uh, you know, of anything, you know, is such a, a small uh, number. But the the millions who have now gone through uh, some form of hormonal replacement therapy, uh, that uh, and who have gone through facial feminization, top or bottom surgery. Um, uh, uh, I, that there, I mean, I think that it points to a reality there that underlies somebody that uh, somebody's self-examination uh, that has uh, occurred over a long period of time is reflective that somebody is able to determine when inside and outside don't match up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, again, going full circle about what we've talked about that's the only modifier that I can come up with that is consistent is that inside and outside don't match up. Once you get to a point of making the decision to do something about that, whether or not it's hormonal replacement therapy or surgery, then how many of those people regret that? If it's only, if it's 2%, then I think that that pretty well proves the point that there's something here that it's just not a matter of, of, of something uh, untoward that, that something ephemeral it's something deeper than that so how does that um, jive with the 40 percent suicide suicidality um, well I think that the 40 percent suicidality especially speaks to the resistance that people have uh, especially growing up especially in certain uh, uh, families certain cultures in which this is just not approved it's seen as something pathologic. And so that's where the education, I think, has to start early in a, in a broad way in order to inform those uh, from uh, kids from a very early point that there, uh, there is no harm in trying to explore gender differences. Um, I've got a, a good friend who I went to, to lunch with the other day, and she said, 
my seven-year-old is now wearing a my who's biologically male, uh, who is cisgendered, has the external genitalia of a, a male declared at birth, and is cisgendered, but wearing a dress to school. Mm-hmm. We talked with the fam. We talked. They. Uh, we talked with the counselor about it. We talked with the the teacher about it. We talked with the class about it. We talked to, with his brother about it. And so it's an educational system. So the, the, the child is now going to, to school at seven years old wearing a dress. And he, all that he tells his mother, I just feel better when I do this. Now, it, it is that, to my way of thinking, is a forward-thinking way to approach this. As, as kids are exploring gender, and it's much more fluid now, Robert, than when when uh, I went through. I'm 72, so, I mean, uh, in in the 60s, you know, that was just not something that was even negotiable now that it is. So I think education... Well, I the same was true with a lot of social issues. I mean, exactly. interracial marriage was barely a thing, yep. and, and, yeah. and gay uh, marriage was definitely oh. not on the table. And Well, in both of those, uh, you know, in uh, gender... Um, the times are a-changing. <laughs> they are, and, you know... Um, uh, being gay w- w- was pathology was was a pathology. So I think that's changed, and I think that the way that the media portrays, I think the the, the images that we show around those things are important because I think they carry a, a valence that that changes us at deeper levels. But the, I think that the generations that I'm seeing and the ones that I saw at Kind Clinic are much more comfortable with being able to move uh, uh, into that role. Now, the problem is, though, is that they they come from cultural backgrounds which have a lot of difficult things, race and religion being two of those, that um, uh, if they get uh, crossways with either of those, especially with families that are not supportive, those are the kids that really become at risk for uh, harm. The so, other thing is, <clears throat> is that if you don't, uh, if you don't have access to um, hormonal replacement therapy, mm-hmm. if there's no way in order to to accommodate that, I would have committed suicide late in the game based on that, and nobody would have ever known any of that. But again, I think that the a therapy uh, that that can be offered now. That's what us talking about it right now should be able to help others uh, uh, realize is is that if you do have something that you even think might be dysphoria, even if it's late in the game, inside and outside don't match up. Then you know there are professionals that can talk about it. You approve. So one of the things I do think is very controversial is HRT in children Um, because if you start giving HRT to a child, it will rapidly change their ability to have children later in life and a bunch of other things that a lot of people feel like they're just not long enough in their, you know, the average person's brain doesn't fully develop until around 25 years old um, based on a bunch of different statistics. But... Um, how can someone who's three years old, five years old or something do that? But on the flip side, is there an iatrogenic effect associated 
with not giving them HRT if you know, in fact, they will eventually want this done because by doing it early enough in life, you have yeah. a better chance of them having more successful outcome. Robert, uh, you know, again, that I think it's an individual case, case by case. Now, as a physician, I can tell you at Kind Clinic, uh, you know, I one, we wouldn't uh, start anybody that, uh, I think the only, the, the youngest that I started with somebody was 16, uh, but with the parent there that fully understood everything that we were talking about. Younger than that, <clears throat> in the suppression, the only thing that I would say is, is that um, if, if we're talking about a dysphoria that creates this ambivalence that might lead to suicidality, then that's the time in which intervention should be entertained. But again, that should be, that's why the, to having a team which would involve a therapist, a psychiatrist, and an endocrinologist is so important to have is, is that, you know, if I had a 10-year-old that was certain that they were a, a transgender woman and we had to face, you know, what to do about the, the, the pubertal hormones that would be a decision that I'd look to professionals to help us walk through. And, you know, if, if, that, if that child, though, from the age of three had said from an early point, I'm a, I'm a girl, you know, and it, 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 it would have to follow a natural history. And those are well documented. And so it's not hard to find. But if there's any question, then that's why I think that that, period between 13 and, and 17 is so critical. And, but again, that's why individuals need to have help in walking through that is to, from a professional standpoint, give them all the information that they need in order to make that decision and the parents too as well. But I think that there are some that it's, it's, it's clear that they were born uh, in, in with a certain um, disconnect, and there are others that it's a little more, more ambivalent, and they may or may not move through that. Uh, and but those are the ones that uh, you know, from my perspective, I just didn't have enough experience with the blockers uh, to to start those on fourteen and fifteen year olds, and so I I just never went there. So I did um, some security work once upon a time for a company that did Asperger's research. Okay. And they had a very interesting problem. Like <clears> most <throat> people I had done that type of research from work with, they were worried about people stealing data. They weren't worried about people stealing data. They were worried about people modifying data. So their concern was there's two sets of bad actors who want to modify their data. One set of them are people who believe that if this turns out to be um, uh, some injection, you know, let's say it's uh, some polio vaccine or something gave right. their children or their grandchildren or however it works, um, some autism. Um, they'd be worried that um, approximately uh, some crazy number, like well over a percent of China, for instance, has some form of autism. Okay. So if that turns out to be the United States and it's one of our vaccines that have been used, 
then that could easily trigger a war kind of situation. Alternatively, if it's uh, it turns out that it's something related to a gene, something that's that's passed down, let's say, or you know some defect that's that's knowable within the early stages of in utero, you could theoretically abort the child ahead of time. And the problem with that is there's a whole bunch of people who are Aspergers who are like, wait, I'm totally functional, good human being. Yeah. You would get rid of me. So I think we kind of have a similar bad set of choices when it comes to um, whether transgender is a social thing or whether it's a biological thing. If it's a social thing, then you can't make the claim that you are born like this or whatever, because as you were saying, it's a social thing. It had something to do with your upbringing. If it's uh, a genetic thing uh, or a polygenic thing, um, where it's many genes might be related to the one thing. Right. The problem is we have good evidence that um, Mendelian type disorders like Down syndrome, syndrome for instance, um, they pulled somewhere in Europe and they had something crazy like a 98% of the population said they would abort. So you have a very similar problem with Asperger's. They say, what, you would abort me? Um, I think you have you run into a similar problem where there would be a certain percentage of people who would say, oh, my child is going to be transgender, abort. But Robert, I, I don't think there is any... Now, you can determine if there are... Um, problems with sexual genitalia. So if there's ambivalent or intersex that, that are born which have ambivalent genitalia, mm -hmm. uh, it, you might be able to determine that in the womb. Otherwise, there's no way that you can say that trans... But, but just, for, just for... But you can't. But, <laughs> and that I don't want to get off on that okay, because right. it's multifactorial. It's not just... It's not genetic. Uh, it's not polygenetic. It's not epigenetic. It's it, it's a combination of uh, culture um, and um, hormonal uh, effects, as well as perhaps genetic. But the thing is, is that even with the sophistication that we've got with the ge human genome, that we there, there's no way to point to that. So you would say that although maybe there is some biology related to it. It is largely social and environmental. And all of the above. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. right, sure. Yes, yes. Um, so that that definitely flies in the face of a lot of people who say, no, I was born like this. I was born in the wrong body. Oh, and, you know. And, and they're saying it as if this is... And, again, I think that's a, a way of speaking about a natural history is is that I, I perhaps I, I wish that I could have been in this body in this gender earlier than I was um, and saying that, yeah, I, from an early point, I remember when I thought that I was something other. And so there are folks, there are a lot of people that, that think that, that can remember back and say at this point in time when I was five years old, I remember blah, 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 and fill in the blank. So, I mean, I think that's a metaphor for that they use you know, I was born into this. Well, they they may have, but the thing is, is that the external genitalia, which determine what sex were assigned at birth, uh, is still the, the 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 modifier which sticks with us. That determines if you're cisgendered or what you are. 
mm-hmm. from a cisgender standpoint. How quickly you can change that then uh, depends, again, on an individual history. How has your dating life been since this whole thing? I know your wife and you are separated, and how, how have things progressed on that front? I mean, what What's the dating life I don't, like you know, for you? I, I can't tell you that, I, I mean, I haven't dated uh, per se. I've got a, 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 gr- a group of women, professional women, who uh, I call friends of Sheila, <laughs> and uh, they are good friends. Uh, they've become really good friends. And what I will say is, is that, you know, since I am still married, um, that's one thing. Uh, also that for the two last two years, I mean, I've had my head buried in the, in the books. Uh, and so I, I really haven't made the time to, to be out. And, you know, is that something you plan to change? Or you want to get out there and Robert, I, well, I think the thing is, look, literally none of this is in my business whatsoever. Well, so I, feel but, free to tell me that, you know, <laughs> I, I thought here. about it because it was on, <laughs> on the list there. And, um, who do I want to date? What do I want to date? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I've thought a lot about that is that if I was dating, I, I think that I would like to, to date women. So I would be a lesbian um, in, in the vernacular. Uh, now, if I if and when I get bottom surgery, as I kid with my um, friends of Sheila, I go, you know, I might like to test drive this just to see whether or not I can have an orgasm. So um, it, it would depend on the individual that uh, it, it was funny. I was... Um, on Instagram, somebody from a, a, a class different from my at West Point wrote me the other day and said, um, how does an attractive woman like you get on my, keep showing up in my Facebook as a suggested uh, friend? And so I had to write him back and I said, hey, I'm class of, uh, and so that's probably how. So anyway, he took it in a good good nature. But so to be honest with you, how would it be to be out in the world? It would have to be the right individual. Sure. And I um, think it, that's the answer everyone should give. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm not. I'm not looking for it. You know, it's seventy-two. Geez. You know, I no, turn into. Don't say that. There's plenty of time. I turn into. You've got a lot of miles. You've got a lot of miles. There's a lot more left. I can tell well, you. Well, thanks. All right, I've just been informed that we are approaching a three-hour mark, so I should probably jump to the stuff that, that you're doing these days. So, right. So you started a new bespoke clinic, as I think is the right way to phrase it. Is it, is it a clinic or is it a... No, it is a concierge, concierge ketamine service. service. Yes. Ketamine and DMT, is that right? No, just ketamine. Just ketamine. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, so these are both disassociative anesthetics, is that... Yeah, that right? DMT is a very short-acting anesthetic uh, or, or psychedelic. Ketamine is the classic disassociative anesthetic that was developed in Vietnam uh, to get wounded veterans, uh, wounded soldiers back, uh, medevaced back to the hospital safely. So it had a. That's what it was developed for: is to to inject in the wounded soldier 
on the battlefield without cardiac or respiratory suppression in order to get them in the medevac back to the MASH hospital and stabilized. So, um, in, so the first 20 years or so, there was known to be a psychedelic component of this, which was thought to be a bad side effect. It wasn't until some of the studies earlier uh, done by Stan Groff and some other uh, really forward-thinking uh, physicians began to look at the history of this that they began to see that the it was the psychedelic experience that really was the thing they could point to that helped with depression, PTSD, and suicidality. And so that's when in the, the, the 1990s, it remained the only uh, psychedelic that was not placed in the class one uh, schedule level that that prevented anybody from using it for anything. Ketamine was not. And I think that Big Pharma, I think, uh, I won't name the company, but I think that there was somebody that had ability to to pass out uh, a lot of... uh, money in, in different places that allowed them to develop a, an intranasal form of ketamine. So, but it got a bad reputation in the 90s as a rave drug. And so in low doses, it does cause disassociation and it can, uh, when used repeatedly, cause problems. The doses, though, that I, then they began to use it in... 2000, especially in NYU and some studies that Stephen Levine was doing there um, uh, around uh, for uh, significant depression and uh, for uh, PTSD and later as for suicidality. So um, I became, uh, again, I think that's another point I'd like to to make sure that people understand is, is that dysphoria it is not something that that is treated and goes away. It it ebbs and flows. So I became dysphoric uh, again uh, in um, 2021, early, and I have a, a, an excellent uh, therapist psychiatrist who said, "Listen, I'm using ketamine now, and we might ought to try that." And that was because the suicidal ideation had become an aspect of dysphoria again. So I said, okay, let's And this is a drug-resistant form of suicidality? Oh, you know. Because some some can be treated with MAOIs or. And I've been on um, SSRIs for 20 years. It's suicide has many different pathways. It's not just one thing. And so it's not treatable with any of the SSRIs just of itself, I don't think, although some people have marked response. But the thing is, is that um, with one dose of ketamine, which was completely uh, a different experience from what I'd had with Ibogaine and with ayahuasca, which I had used um, uh, in, in, um, over the, the last several years, uh, that it, it, it was a completely different experience. But what I can tell you is, is that it took suicidality off the table after one dose. Hmm. And so I dived into it with the psychiatrist. I said, 
you got to show me what the data is, show me the books, what the literature says, et cetera. So I became, I became really interested in what it might offer. As a retired person, of course. <laughs> well, it, you know, the thing was is that... Decided to the, start another company. The, the dreams were pretty clear. And I had a dream uh, that said, Sheila, it's time to get out and not finish this PhD, but get your master's and get out and get back into the world. And so beginning in September, I knew that something wanted to evolve around ketamine. I'd had a lot of uh, background by that time in mythology, which is part of the, the depth psychology curricula. And so I, I had a sense that Metis, which is one of the, the primary goddesses uh, in the uh, Greek tradition, th th had something to do with wisdom. And there was a, a, there was a consciousness of the medication that could be affected if it was used in a certain way. And so, so that's this is, what, this isn't a rave. This is a controlled environment where you, you manage the variables. And the, the thing is, is that what we do know is, is that in any relationship, especially a, a, a healing relationship between shaman or healer and patient, there's transference, counter-transference, and something in between. Quantum mechanics tells us that, you know, we're, or probability fields, and something goes on between us. That's what we call the force or whatever, <laughs> but it's a reality. And so what I began to, to understand was is that if I can help somebody to tether this experience by educating them about what we're dealing with and that we know that the medication has some capacity to change you, with an injection, then we amplify that. Once we, once we ritualize its use, so I make sure that we screen people well. You know, from history, physical, um, this mental isn't drug seeking behavior. Drug seeking. I mean, all of that becomes pretty clear mm -hmm. after thirty years of working one on one with people. I can pretty well detail that. Mm -hmm. Then I have them, uh, I do an astrology chart just to get another picture of where they might be in a weather pattern of their psyche. And then I have them do a, um, a personality test like the Myers-Briggs, except it has eight functions instead of four. I can tell with that, with, with a complex thing that I've, I've learned and am now doing research around, whether or not I need more or less of the medication dependent upon uh, personality type. Hmm. So, but the thing is then I go to you. And so uh, we sit there, we do an intentional prayer. I do an injection, intermuscular, not IV. And the absorption rate with the IV uh, is about the same. It is intermuscular, 98%, 93%. And then you put on headphones, go to sleep, um, or, or have this uh, experience with Metis. And that's what I say. Metis, this is between you and the medication, the, the wisdom of the medication. And it's a reality. And so people are... I, and, and what do they describe when they go through that process? What, how, does, how does that transform them? I've had people that woke up and said, 
say, you know, I feel at some way I've been changed or healed. I've had that happen several times now. I have lots of people just wake up and say, I feel lighter. What we do know is, is that ketamine does offer a disassociative experience with the ego and that it's able, uh, and the valence or the charge of that ego is diminished by the drug, by the, by the psychedelic experience itself. And so when ego is able to see this, the, the, this uh, ability, that this tag uh, with self, it, it's always been attached to that. It recognizes that, and that's what I'm hearing more and more of. Is, is I just feel lighter. I feel like I'm part of something greater. And the other thing that it does is this, this ego self axis seems to, to be wrapped with trauma, uh, with early life um, uh, um, issues. And the ketamine seems uh, with repeated doses to clean off that, that line that is obscured over a period of time. So it makes the, the, the distance between the ego and self, whatever that is, uh, more um, linear. It, it, this, the, the ego recognizes that it's part of something larger. And that's what the, that's what the medication does. So by so now... How, how is it functionally different than ayahuasca or DMT? What's the... What's the, what's the mechanism? Why is it more effective, do you well, think? Well, uh, again, it, it's multiple pathways. And each of, the, each of these um, sacred plants, let's call those sacred plants, works not only, I, I believe, uh, in the brain. It has it, it, All of those are anti-inflammatories in their own way. But they also have a consciousness to them that works in the psyche, which is your conscious and unconscious. It works in ways that we just don't understand. And that's the whole thing. We don't understand any of the ways. We don't understand how they work. And why isn't there more research on that? Is this well, purely a sketch because most of these things are schedule one? No, and they're doing those. But the thing that I'm seeing more and more, even with some of the studies that are being done here at UT at Dell Medical, is that you know, they're, they're, they're treating mushrooms and MDMA as if it was Prozac in the 90s. And so they're very specific about who comes in, about who, you know, because one, that's what they get paid to do. They get government funds from the NIH to do that. But the other thing is, is that uh, it gets to be exactly what we saw in the 90s with Prozac. It's a Prozac nation. I'm talking about dealing with people that have suicidal ideation, who have deep depression, that can't wait another eight years in order to, to have the possible effects. Mm -hmm. The thing that I do know is, especially with ketamine, and after using this now for almost a year, uh, and I, I probably have as much experience with intermuscular ketamine as most anybody in the States just by the, the fortune of being involved with this. I know that the, the one thing that I am finding is is that you have to, to tether the experience of the psychedelics consciously, I think, in order to amplify what it does in the psyche. 
Now, you can get plugged in and get an IV, and it helped it from an anti-inflammatory standpoint, and recast neural networks. That goes on regardless of whether or not you believe it or not, or whether or not we have some sort of means to, to honor that or to form a new consciousness. But it's amplified if it's used in, in a way in which the consciousness is made an awareness between you and me. Yeah, I, I've often, I've never gone through an ayahuasca ceremony, but I feel like when I hear people talking about it, there's a there's a spiritual aspect of it, even well before you arrive, you got to like get yep. in this mental state yes. and then you, you're there and there's a diet and, and then the drug itself is actually several compounds. It's not just right. uh, right. DMT. It's also an MAOI at the same time combined together. Otherwise it wouldn't digest period. You yep. just you'd do nothing. Um, but all of those things have kind of grown for, you know, eons, however long it's been yep. since those ceremonies yes. were first created. And, there's a reason for it. Like they, those things didn't just pop up. Like people had, people tried a lot of things before they landed on right. that. Right. <laughs> and so I, I do agree that while the drug itself is probably extremely potent, it also seems like if you don't have the spiritual aspect of it, if you don't have this group with you to are kind of experiencing it and helping right. you guide you yep. across this, the chances of you getting a bad trip or, or having something bad happen to you go up substantially if you're out in the middle of a jungle, let's say, and yeah. you know, you're just on something crazy and you're just going to get eaten by a tiger. Um, there's a lot of sort of, uh, I like to have the uh, epistemological view of every single yeah. s- thing that we take for granted here yes. in modern society. And that, that seems like a, it has a long, um, I, I don't know exactly if you, if you can phrase it this way, but it, it, an evolutionary um, aspect to it. Yeah. There's so much to that ceremony. There's so much to all of this that there's got to be something to almost every component of it. Yeah, and especially mushrooms. I know that uh, mm-hmm. there's a, 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 a lot of, of, of play ar- ar- around that. I, I will say this, that um, each of those, in, in my own experience, seems to have a different teacher. And the ibogaine was extremely hard from a physical standpoint, and um, especially with cardiac um, uh, arrhythmias, I had to have um, a, a echocardiogram and a stress test before uh, I was allowed to take that. And then the ayahuasca uh, is, is a uh, is a rigorous um, series uh, of the way that it's typically used, but again. If a, if there is a shaman or someone that constellates that vessel between you and and them, then it seems to tether that, as opposed to just floating off um, with a say a, a bad acid trip, for instance. Now I will say this about ketamine. Ketamine is, is a completely different natured teacher, and I I I say that it that if you get out there and you know that somehow you're so far into some space and that is the psychedelic component that we're talking about that that's healing if you get out there you can always think of love love seems to bring the people that i work with back to an anchor point and for some reason then that uh, i will say that ketamine does seem, when it's framed in those ways, 
And again, it's a particular ritual that I use, but if it's framed that way, I haven't had anybody that has had a bad trip. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Um, and the other thing about ketamine is it is much faster um, through the cycle, right? It's it's only a handful of hours. It's not it's not an ayahuasca. No, that, that's correct. It's not an ayahuasca multi day sort of journey or whatever. Well, it, it can be now. the The way that I offer it, uh, it, it, it as a building a platform. Uh, and I think that's the best way of, of describing that, is, is that, um, it, yes, it's about 45 minutes to an hour, hour and a half with an injection. Um, and Which is something you can do right after work before you, yeah, you know, grab, grab a bite to eat with well, your friends kind of thing. <laughs> no, but I, again, I encourage people to treat it uh, as a really formal ritual. Of course. It's probably much more effective when they treat it seriously. It, it is. It yes. is. And the the second part of that is is that I also uh, try to work with those people to see what sort of images they bring back because I'm trying to help them tie the image with some sort of emotion, which then seems to have some psychic effect. And the other thing is is that with with the knowledge that I've got uh, about uh, in-depth psychology, I can tell really how far down into the unconscious that, that they have gone. And how long would you say the ceremony is from the beginning to end? Is it like three hours after it's all said and done? Two hours. Two hours. Two okay. hours. So not so I come to you, you know, we do, we do, we do everything uh, and I make sure that I don't have people dwell uh, or repeat back to me anything uh, unless they want to talk about something specific. And you go to them. I go to them. Because that's their most comfortable place. That's right. Wherever they are the most popular. Now, I've had people come from Dallas uh, and other places, and so they get an Airbnb, but it's someplace in which they feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And by that time, you know, we've spent several hours online and getting to know each other in very specific ways so it's not like they don't know me um and especially after we go through these things especially three days in a row then there's a bond you know i'm physician they're patient so there's something sacred in that and so i continue to try to honor that but i'm afraid though that if you just that if you pull up at a a, a ketamine clinic which are, are prolific now get plugged into an IV, it may help, especially from the anti-inflammatory uh, or the uh, uh, the uh, pathways that are, are reformed. That's great, but that wears off fairly quickly. The thing that I'm talking about is a consciousness change that occurs with using it in a certain, tethering it in a certain way. So safety, um, safety concerns, uh people who are overdosing or anything like that? Like what's the, I, I mean, the thing is, is that there, there's a certain dose range that I use intermuscular, which is about uh, five times s- smaller that it, it, it's five times larger than what you would use at, at intranasal at a, at a rave uh, a party or, or whatever, but it's uh, 10 times less than what you would use as a general anesthetic. Hmm. So it's a, there's a very safe range to, to work in. And so the thing is, the half-life of the drug is, is short enough. Uh, and again, it was built with 
the the fact that there is no respiratory or cardiac suppression. So, so it's it, not like an opioid. No, or, it's not. Yeah. It's not. So the but the thing is, I mean, if there was something untoward, I mean, I sit there the whole time and mm-hmm. watch respirations. You know, I the the I've got a blood pressure cuff. You know, we we do all of those things. But the other thing is, is that I screen and I make sure that there's no underlying cardiac or respiratory uh, issue that, um, I, you know, if, if there's any question, I just go, you know, th- this is probably not something that you, that, that you probably, uh, that I feel comfortable about. Mm-hmm. But I've not excluded anybody based on the basis of just a physical um, uh, malady to, to start with uh, now. So I know we burned through about three hours now. Uh, I'm sorry. This has been fun. I know it has I been. It. I, yeah. I, I had a whole bunch of other things we want to talk about, but I'm, okay. maybe we could do it some other time. Um, so most importantly, where can people find you, follow you, and you know, um, read your book? And FindingMetis.com. FindingMetis, M-E-T-I-S. Metis is the goddess of wisdom. Uh, FindingMetis.com is the, the website. Um I'll be at a meetup uh, at South by uh, on the 14th at 1130 over at the Marriott. Um, Your book? Book uh, was written in a 2018 self-published. Actually, I published it as uh, Sheila Grace, MD, because of family stuff. I, I just didn't want to get everybody involved. So I checked the books up there. <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it's on uh, Kindle. Great. Well, thank you very much thank for you. doing this. It's perilous. Uh, it was a hard conversation in some ways, but I, I you handled it with grace. And, well, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. And I, I, the the questions were impeccable, and um, I, you know, I'm really glad to explore at this level because most folks just aren't interested in 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 diving deep into this, which I think is vital if we're really going to understand the issues that we're talking about. Thank you so much for for, okay. for being here. Really, really You're appreciate welcome. it. Uh, you've been watching the Arsenic Show with Dr. Sheila Grace Newsom. Thank you again. Mm-hmm.